This is the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm Christian Cote from UHN Public Affairs, and today we're speaking with Dr. Alan Hudson. Dr. Hudson is a renowned neurosurgeon, author, and recipient of numerous awards, including Canada's highest civilian honor, Officer of the Order of Canada. From 1991 to 2000, Dr. Hudson was president and CEO of University Health Network, or as it was known then, the Toronto Hospital. Dr. Hudson, welcome. Thank you. Let's begin uh, at the beginning, 1938. You're born and raised in Cape Town. You grew up in post-World War II South Africa when that, uh, I guess we'll characterize it as a brutal political and social system of apartheid was first established. How did that experience shape you, your worldview growing up? Yeah, well, I knew you were going to ask me that question, so I sort of thought about it. But, I mean, born 38, so the, the world was living through the development of the Cold War. I was living through the development of apartheid, and it was very isolated. Uh, because although we were stuck on the end of Africa, because of apartheid, we had nothing to do with Africa. It was still really almost a colony, a few whites allegedly ruling but actually suppressing millions of blacks. It was a colonial area had ended the Second World War and Eden's efforts at Suez, that was it. But we still kept on in that sort of colonial mentality. And it was originally Dutch, but subsequently English. I was my parents of English extraction. They thought the center of the world was Piccadilly Circus. So that was the world. It was quite different to the world. I'd never heard of – I'd heard of Canada. It was red – on the map somewhere, on the Atlas, Eisenstein. I had literally never heard of Toronto, never heard of Ontario. And no TV, of course, uh, no TV, it was banned. So there was no TV in South Africa at all. I saw TV the first time I came here. So my life in, in these very broad elements was shaped by apartheid. And then the second huge element was shaped by going to medicine. So, you know, you grow up on your mother's knee, then you go to high school. But then the, the two big things were medical school and apartheid. So that's how I grew up. Your decision to enter into healthcare as a profession, is there an aha moment for you that you can recall? Yeah, I guess there were two. One was not an aha, it was at a background. I was very, very sick as a kid. I had terrible asthma. And our family doc used to make house calls, you know, those days. So he was a sort of a revered figure in the family. No family history of medicine at all in every direction. And then my best friend was Jewish, and, and the importance of this, I used to play tennis with him, and then we'd go to the Friday night suppers. His mother and father were doctors, every single aunt and uncle was a doctor, da, 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 da. And at the, in high school, the aha moment, and I remember I was sitting next to him on a bus, I very stupidly said, what are you going to do when you finish high school? And he had like a dumb question, obviously he's going to do medicine. Oh, that sounds a good idea, I'll do medicine. So that, that was, and it was really the influence of his parents that I'd met on Friday nights after tennis at their Seder suburbs and so on. And so that, that's, that was the turning point for me. So you enter med school at Cape Town. So direct, yeah, directly from high school. Yeah. And you're involved. Uh, I want to. I don't know if I'm characterizing this right, but you got involved in some rather, I would say, dangerous experiences. In that, you, you know, you were going into slums to practice medicine as part of going to med school. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this is what we did, right? <laughs> no one was trying to be a hero or anything. Um, so the, we talked about the locations. So, I mean, if you ask me what was the population of Cape Town, I'd tell you. But, of course, I was only counting white people. We had no idea how many black people were there. And I used distasteful words, but those were the words we used at the time. Um, so, the, they lived in locations, and the primary care was 
virtually non-existent. So I didn't establish this, but I went in as a student. Of course, we were sort of mini doctors, right? and I wore a white coat, and I had a Vespa scooter. So you flap along with your white coat at night, and no one was going to knife you or kill you. Uh, and then we ran the clinic. And I mean, the kiddies with pus running out of the ears, they all had a tiredest media, and the kid would be sitting opposite you, and a worm would crawl out of his nose, and, and they, had, they all had diarrhea and vomiting. And so, and so and these kids were sick, and adults were And then a local GP would donate an evening, because we couldn't sign the scripts, right? so we'd make the diagnosis, but we weren't allowed, we weren't licensed. He'd then sign a bunch, bunch of 20 scripts, and off they went home. So um, it was part of the service of medicine. I mean, we didn't talk about it. That's what you did. But it was under cover of night? You had to sort no, no. of hide what you were doing? Um, yes, there were some parts of, a, a lot of parts of apartheid which were eliminated. The government didn't try and eliminate this because they literally had no alternative. There was no primary care. I mean, so they, they sort of looked the other way and they had bigger things to do. But uh, certainly uh, improving Medicare care of blacks was not high on their list. So it was, it was anti-apartheid in the sense we were ignoring apartheid. And that's how we did it. So, some risk involved in what you were doing. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, that was, that was life. Wow. Uh, interestingly, at that time in Cape Town, one of your mentors is a doctor named Christian Barnard. Yes. And he would go on, I don't know if the audience would know, went on to perform the world's first successful heart transplant. Of course you don't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, so your career could have taken a very much different turn if you yes. had not turned him down. Tell us about that. Well, in my intern year, I was the lowest on the totem pole. He had come back from the States and he, the VA looked the other way and he boxed up a hot lung machine. So this was the first in Africa. So I was at the first. Opening. When are we talking about here? Uh, this was uh, 60. And um, so he was the only person who knew how a hot lung machine worked, of course. Anyway, if you look at the hierarchy, I was just thinking about it. the guy who cleaned the floor was probably the only person below me. I was the junior intern. Um, but we did one case a week. It was a huge production, of course. And then uh, the resident had a stand next to the patient's bed the whole night. You weren't allowed to sit down. And the patient, of course, in a big oxygen tent. It was very hot, so I tried to cool the patient down. Chris was uh, extremely friendly with about half the nurses in the hospital, so you never knew which time he was coming in, three or four in the morning. You had to sort of gasp. And then we used to, the chest x-ray, you'd get someone to take a chest x-ray, and then you had to develop it. You'd dip it in and out. And you had to somehow be holding a fresh, dripping chest x-ray as Chris walked to the door, which took a little bit of guesswork. Um, and then I, when I was there, there was a huge uh, lowering of standards, and I can remember it plainly. It was a stuffed armchair. We were actually allowed to sit down next to the patient for the night. Uh, so it was the whole day of the surgery and the whole night. And then Chris would come in, and then he'd leave because his daughter became a world water skiing champion. So he took her off for her practice. I don't think he ever slept. Uh, so and anyway, answer your question. He then said, Hudson, I will train you to be a cardiac surgeon. And all my trainers, all my teachers, had been through the British system. It was the tradition. And so, and they were all World War II surgeons. They were slick as nuts. They were very good surgeons. But they all had the London exams or the Edinburgh exams. And Chris had none. So that's, you know, when you're an intern, you know everything, right? You know everything about everything. It was quite plain that Chris had not been trained because he didn't have any British qualifications. So I turned him down. And if I had, I, the whole 
development of cardiac surgery. It would have been my career and in the subsequent deterioration of cardiac surgery been my career. But you know, we all have funny stories that I can analyze, but I did turn him down because I thought he wasn't qualified. I mean, training in American surgery, who ever heard of that? So it just, I mean, it showed how ignorant I was. <laughs> well, when he went on to perform the world's yeah. first successful heart transplant, any second thoughts there? Well, I was, I was quite a bit later. In fact, I was in training in neurosurgery. Well, of course, I claimed that he did it because of me. Uh, <laughs> no, in fact, uh, he was actually, he, he was running a tremendously innovative transplant laboratory in the time I was there as a student. So, I mean, I, he's a, he was a genius and a very good surgeon with a terrific tremor. So his hand would shake, and then as he put the needle tip in, it went in in exactly the right place. So it was a little bit hair-raising to operate with him. And, of course, he was shouting and screaming at the hard lung people, shouting and screaming at the anesthetists, shouting and screaming at me. He, was, he worked on the edge of his nerves the whole time, but uh, he was a fantastic guy. 1960, you're 22 years old, and you graduate med school from Cape Town, and you head off to London to train as a surgeon. And four years later, you, it leads to an opportunity in Toronto, Canada. Tell us about that. Um, well, so I went from Cape Town to London, which was the journey, via Toronto, because I went to see the girl I used to take out, who was the only Canadian at Cape Town University. So I actually worked here for six months. I knew one Canadian at SickHeads. So I went up to him and said, you've got to give me a job. I haven't got any money. And he goes, are you crazy? Who do you think you are? Uh, uh, anyway, I got a job at SickKids for six months ah. in neurosurgery doing some research. Ah. But then I, off I went to London. So I then trained as a general surgeon and I got my exams. And then I had that. This was a, a real pivot in my life. I go back to Cape Town where my life was arranged. Right? I was professor's assistant, played all the cricket and all that good stuff. And so I was all sitting there. Or stay in England, because I was then offered some very good jobs in England with the huge traditional surgery over the centuries. I didn't appreciate it was waning, but you, again, you know everything at that time. Or go to Australia or go to New Zealand, because if you went back to South Africa then, I mean, I was part of apartheid, but if you go back, now you had time to think. I mean, you were going back to a wonderful life at the expense of somehow there was no escaping that equation. The other part was just simply self-preservation. I was going to go back, I was going to be killed. I mean, the, you were going to die on the altar of apartheid, which was a terrible system because protesting was irrelevant, and there was going to be an enormous bloody revolution for certain. And that, of course, only Mandela saved the day. So that was selfish. I didn't want to get killed at that stage of my life. And seeing I had married a Canadian, her family was here, that's why I came to Canada. So I applied for general surgery here to become a senior resident or a junior fellow. And um, a few weeks later, I got a telegram, congratulations, you're accepted on the neurosurgical program to which I had never applied. So it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> uh, so that's how I came to Canada. That's how I came to Canada as a neurosurgeon. So it was a, a, a bit to do with having met someone well, and that was the Bruce, opportunity. Bruce Hendrick, the man who was a lovely guy, he was one of the world's leading pediatric neurosurgeons at SickHeads, and I just did research for him. And he took my application, crossed out general surgery, and put it in neurosurgery. I learned this later. I couldn't work out how else. Anyway, so I had to get a job. I had to make some money, so I came and became a neurosurgeon. Wow. So I'm skipping forward a bit here. The 70s and 80s, you, you establish yourself as actually one of the leading neurosurgeons, certainly at, Mike, at St. Mike's Hospital and indeed you know, the country in Canada. You perform the world's first sciatic nerve transplant. You research, you publish, you have a prestigious and successful career going as a surgeon scientist. And then in 1989, the Toronto Hospital 
that was the name for UHM back then, comes calling to be their surgeon in chief. What did you know about the place at that time? What about the General Hospital? The General Toronto Hospital. Hospital. Well, it's a Mike's. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. It was goddamn bloody Toronto General Hospital, one word. So, I mean, that was the relationship. What does that mean? Well, I mean, at the depth, it was jealousy. Um, in reality, um, it was a different ethos. I mean, St. Mike's were very high level, very high quality clinicians doing excellent work. And they thought a bunch of eggheads, arrogant eggheads at the general. Um, and um, so it was a, just a different view of life. And, you know, in the initial training, they'd all trained at the general. And, you know, you can do the easy cases at Michael's and send us the difficult cases. Of course, the hell with that. We can do all the big cases at the Mike's. So it was a different, it was a rivalry. And deep down, it was jealousy. Um, so 89, though, when you are approached, yes. I guess for a few years, there had been some sort of, it was a bit unsettled because Toronto General and Toronto Western had merged to become yes. the Toronto Hospital. Yeah. So, 89, there's probably still some rancor yeah, left I mean, over. Both, both push and pull. I mean, you know, reasons to, I've been to Mike's 25 years, right? Reasons to leave St. Mike's, reasons to come. Uh, and I watched with amusement this horrendous rancor of the West and the general. Uh, and, you know, serves us by his rights. We'll keep doing our work over here. And we were far more popular. Residents all want to come and work at St. Mike's because it was good clinical training. So, I mean, I, I wasn't involved. I just watched and to some extent, didn't care, actually, too much. Uh, I mean, I was the first professor ever not to have been at Sick Kids or the General. I was at St. Mike's was the first. I was professor of neurosurgery, so I sort of watched all stuff. But, but the push part, I, the neurosurgical chairmanship comes to an end after 10 years. Now what am I going to do? So they were, I was looking around a bit. Uh, and in fact, uh, I had sorted it out. I was going to work with an orthopod who was a complimentary, and I was complimentary to him on the nerve business. And St. Mike's CEO had bought a big building on the other side of Queen Street, and we were going to run a clinic for Chicago, Detroit, New York, Boston, for the sort of stuff I was doing he was doing. So we had that all worked out. Just a slight problem, the CEO at St. Mike's hadn't omitted to mention this to the board that he'd bought this building, and there was a huge harush and so on. So that sort of fell apart um, slightly. And and then they had a new strategic plan at St. Michael's, and uh, to their credit, the fact that I had every slide in Sao Paulo, Berlin, or New Delhi started St. Michael's Hospital, it didn't mean very much to them. Their vision and mission was to look after the poor and downtrodden of Toronto, and they stuck to that, and good for them. You know? So what I was doing, which I thought was enhancing St. Michael's, they didn't think was very important. Well, they were very supportive to me as professor and chairman. I'm not complaining. So you know, some of the things happening at St. Mike's, I didn't, were getting a bit fed up with. And then Bernie Langer said, get in there and you I'm all apply. So I sort of had my marching orders from the boss. So I, that's what I did. I went and applied. And actually, the first time I looked, I thought, well, I really don't want this. So I gave them three names. I said, look, one in South Africa, one in Montreal, and then they didn't work out for whatever reason. So then Bernie phoned again and said, I'm not kidding, get back in there. And I mean, basically, Bernie didn't like the other candidates, really, what it came down to. So, so Bernie Langer is who? Bernie Langer is everything. He was the head of surgery. Uh, and then when the president of the Royal College of Surgeons and so on, he was the, the big guide of the whole new world of academic surgery in Toronto. He was immensely influential. Um, so that's so then I went, then I played seriously the second time. I got the job. This is in 89. Yeah. You take, so you do take the job as surgeon in chief at the Toronto Hospital, as yes. it's still called then. 
What was your sort of raison d'etre going into that position? Well, that was very obvious. I mean, most of these strategies are dead easy. It's not the strategy. It's the doing. That's the hard part. I mean, the strategy is obvious. Vic Stoughton, who was an extremely bright guy, uh, was my predecessor. Uh, not my, well, he wasn't my predecessor. He was predecessor CEO. But he had come as a very young man and as an MBA, quote, unquote, not as a doctor. And he had merged the hospitals. This, you're talking about Vic Stoughton was head of Toronto General. He merged Toronto Western with Toronto General correct. in and the mid-'80s. It was really all his idea. Right. Of course, everyone asked, why did he do it and so on. But it was his idea. He'd come from merging three hospitals in Boston. He knew what he was doing. Uh, he was very unpopular because he was challenging the establishment. System, yeah. yeah. Of course. So then the trouble was he couldn't do anything because he was so unpopular and because the powerhouses at the General West were so strong, he, he couldn't achieve anything. So, I mean, what you did achieve was meetings between the staffs, which were just short of hitting each other on the head with chairs. I mean, <laughs> people in general hated to be in the West and vice versa. And uh, so I came after about three years of this, and they made a very smart move. The new surgeon chief, which was me, was from St. Michael's, and the new physician chief was Sinai, was Arnie Abram, who was a genius. So by, that was by decision to bring people who had no baggage, Right, right. So we took, he and I took one look, not at our plan. This was Vic's five-year strategy. So we're doing this in six months, which we did, which was the whole point of the merger, which was to consolidate cardiac at one side, neuroscience at the other side, and so on. We did it not because of any great attributes we had, but it was everyone was so far tired of fighting. I mean, we could have suggested anything. They were just crying out for leadership. And Arnie and I agreed on everything. So we said, bing, 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 and we did it all. And then started what was then the new face of the place. Which it meant was, some changes, right, in the well, structure I of the two places? walked to the head of neurology and neurosurgery and Arthur and said, hello, you're moving to the western. We're Tyron David at the western. And I said, you're moving to the general. He said, no, 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 I've got everything perfect here, hot and rock, cold running nurses. He had the place beautifully set up for And he's a brilliant, brilliant surgeon. I said, well, forget that. You're going to the general where all the big shots were. I said, well, don't worry. I'm going to stand behind you. You're going to be, and you're going to take over. So he wouldn't, most people, it, we had no opposition. People obviously had a lot of concern, but it was the timing. People got so fed up fighting, they were delighted. So we did some very big moves, which had a great influence on the, uh, the future. So that's what that was about, those two years. So it was essentially like a, a streamlining of programs so that you had one neurosurgery program at the West and one cardiac center at the Hence general. capital at one place, operating costs at one place, and heft. I mean, in the world of science, you needed to have more bulk if you were going to do anything or to make any achievement. So it, it was very, very influential. But so that wasn't our plan. We just did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're listening to the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of UHN, the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm Christian Cote from UHN Public Affairs, and today we're joined by Dr. Alan Hudson, who was UHN president and CEO from 1991 to 2000. So you've just been, you've been hired as UHN's, or sorry, I should call it the Toronto Hospital's surgeon-in-chief in 89. You streamlined the programs uh, between Toronto Western and Toronto General. And in 1991, a big turning point in your career, the Toronto Hospital leadership comes knocking at your door again. What was that opportunity about? Yeah, it's funny. You know, you remember these, these moments. I was sitting at my desk and Vic knocked 
opened the door. He Vic, never, he never, Vic is. Stoughton. He never knocked the door, just opened the door, walked in, and said, I'm leaving, which was news to me. <laughs> now, he'd been there 10 years, as it turned out. Right. And he said, do you want to be the CEO of the hospital? So I said, Oh, yeah. And I, I, in fact, I had a case open, so I was about to leave to go and scrub in. So I left and scrubbed in, obviously paid no attention. And then he... <laughs> you uh, just well, I mean, whiffed it, was, it off. It was a ridiculous idea. I mean, I had no preparation or no aspiration or anything like that. So uh, then he came back a week later, and I remember that. He said, what are you doing? You know, you haven't said anything. The meeting's tomorrow. So I said, oh, I guess I better pay attention. So obviously I went home and discussed with the family and, you know... Without being immodest, I was at the top of my game around the world and so on. I mean, I'm just going to throw this up. And, As a neurosurgeon? Yeah. And, but the other part, I loved operating. I mean, that was my life, was in the operating room, technical surgery. It's very seductive, you see. You're completely in charge, right? You decide where the lights are, where the nurses are, where you are. And I tried that at home a few times. It didn't work too well. But uh, <laughs> So being a technical surgeon is very seductive if you love operating. I'm going to have to give all that up. And go into an arena, which, frankly, I, I had a lot of ideas of what I thought a hospital should look like, but I had no skill set in running it. So it was a pretty big decision sure. to make in about 12 hours. So, which was, I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. I, I was reading, I guess it was Peter Crossgrove's book. Mm -hmm. uh, you write in the book, one day I was in the operating room and the next I was CEO of Canada's largest teaching hospital. So, give us this. What's what's your thought process here? I mean, did you have doubts going into this? Oh, it'd be crazy <laughs> doubts. No, I mean the thought process again was sort of push and pull. I mean, I'd worked absolutely flat out in my surgical life, and um, you know, we talk now a little bit about post-traumatic stress for surgeons, and we never talk about you know you just sucked it up and did it. But it's very demanding, and neurosurgery is very demanding. Uh, you know, forever dealing with very upset families and grieving families and so on, which takes it out on you. We never talked about it. You just did it, but it does add up eventually. And I mean, I was... How I, so? Well, you know, sorry, uh, your wife's going to die. You know, I'm going to operate her, but we're not going to cure her. Or your fiancé's broken his neck. He's never going to walk again. No sexual function, no bowel control. You have to manage the family through that. You've got to manage the patient through that. I mean... It's the job. I'm not trying to dramatize it, but, you know, you do that year after year after year after year. And neurosurgery is, by its nature, unfortunately, aligned with that sort of thing. So, you know, I was getting a little bit tired. And, I mean, I'd done so many malignant brain tumors. I'd done so many. If I had to do another one, it didn't really matter to me anymore. So, sort of, and then, of course, the huge opportunity to what I conceived the job to be, which was really a sort of being a dean and a CEO and an academic leader by virtue of the fact I had the budget. So that was the huge opportunity. So I said, okay, I'll have a crack at it. And then, of course, <laughs> at, the, at the meeting, I kept saying, guys, this, of course, now the, the chairman of the banks of Canada, <laughs> all the hotshots on the board, said, you do understand, I don't know which we have to hold the balance sheet. So, I mean, I mean don't Let's not kid each other here. And I said, okay, you have a job anyway. So I got the job. I think it's important, Alan, now as we examine the nine years that you're leading the yeah. Toronto Hospital, which goes on to become UHN. Right. What I find striking is the tr it was transformational. And I think you know we should recognize that. And so I want to frame the rest of our conversation through an observation, again, from the Peter Crossgrove book called Boardroom Games, if anybody's interested in that. Y you enter this 
position as CEO of Toronto, and he he says he, he in quotes he says, "You were a great agent of change, and your leadership laid the groundwork for what we now call UHN." So that reputation that you had going in, it seemed, or at least perhaps this was afterwards, he realized you were a great agent of change. Did you see yourself as that going into the job? Well, a little bit. You know, my, I had 10 years of neurosurgery. I completely reoriented and restructured neurosurgical training in Toronto. I mean, I'd had— This is the University of Toronto yes, program, well, med school the program. Yes, the Western, the General, St. Mike's, the Wellesley, Sunnybrook, I guess, in those days. So, and, and through that, uh, you know, I was president of the World Federation of Neurosurgical Society, that sort of stuff. I was around the world on my research. So I was looking at hospitals all over the place. And so when— and, and I was looking at neurosurgical programs, and, and I had decided to completely change the neurosurgical program, which I did in Toronto. And I keep saying, I, you know that's not me, right? It's we. <laughs> um, so I'd had experience of major change, um, and I also, at the same time, thought there was major change due to the hospital. So I, mean, I thought this was a great opportunity. So, um, and, and as surgeon-in-chief, in two years, I'd done a little more than just as I described. I mean, I... My, the very, I don't know how much time you got, I'll tell you a couple of quick stories. My very first week as surgeon chief, uh, I'm watching to see what's trying to work out how it all works here. Somebody comes with a knife in their heart, which you and I would think is moderate emergency, right? So I yes. check how soon did the resident get there. I know that, I'm looking at it just to get a feel for the place. I said, well, how quickly did the staff men get there? Well, lots of humming and hawing, all right? Now, no very strict rules, right? You had to be within 20 minutes of the hospital if you were on call. And you know, I kept telling where was staff and hawing. I mean, cut a long story short, he never came. Oh, Who the, never came? The, the, the staff men on call for cardiothoracic surgery, all right? So this is supposed to be Canada's top hospital. Like, are you kidding me? Where was he? In Spain. Now, that's a moderately elastic concept of being on, on call. call. Right. So when he got back, I uh, called him up and said, I'm Dr. Hudson, new surgeon chief. This was the first week. I said, if you ever do that again, I'll fire you. And the very first week, um, on the professorial unit, I found patients were leaving the hospital, crossing Gerard Street to a private clinic in Lucliffe Place, supported by the Bassets and the Eatons and were big board support, getting horse serum injections, then coming back onto the wards. I said, are you crazy? <laughs> Nobody leaves this hospital unless they discharge, and every aspirin is recorded on the chart. I mean, what are you talking about? So, you know, I did quite a lot of cleanup uh, as surgeon-in-chief. I'm just using a few examples. Um, Some loose practices, it seems. Well, is that see, these are pendulums, right? So what happens at the end of the Second World War, specialization is becoming more and more. It was specialization before the war. Plastic was invented during the war. And these people were really good folks. At the, and they were, they'd earned their stripes. Right? Then you had a whole generation who thought, and there were, some, of course, some absolutely outstanding people there, but there were quite a lot of people that were put on a white coat, I'm famous, I'm part of the Toronto General Hospital. Right? No, you're not. And that, I, some, some other little things. Like, so, of course, I got the, the oh, I got this tough guy, the new surgeon, which was nonsense. This was introduction to Tiny Todd's sister, how to run to Bob and surgery. This was mm -hmm. not being mm -hmm. tough. So, I, I mean, I had made quite a lot of changes in Bowen's area. I, I completely changed the incentive system. I got there, and I noticed that the people doing the, the least academic work were making the most money. I mean, operating in money is an equation, all right? So, well, that doesn't make much sense. We had to be an academic hospital. Let's change all that. So, in fact, 
you know, the usual way, call people in, go away, give me some direction and give me some criteria and I'd look at it, send it back. You know, after six weeks, okay, now we've got a, a policy we all agree on. We're going to reward academic surgeons. And then, then after that, there's no more discussion, right? You just enforce it. So that's the consensus part, and then there's the dictatorial part. So, I mean, I did change quite a lot in surgery, all of which was extreme. And the other thing I changed, actually, <laughs> you, you know, it was quite funny. The first, after the first couple of weeks, I sat in my office, and I was doing nothing because this was the era of matrix management. So you had the physical therapist, the floor cleaner, the pod cleaner, the nurses, the doctor. They all thought they were running. It was like a matrix. So this was matrix management, which, of course, meant everybody thought they were running it, which meant no one was running it. So I went to Vic after about a month and said, what the hell am I doing here? I've come to this famous job. I've inaugurated the McCutcheon chair, great prestige, and I'm twiddling my thumbs. You know, what am I doing? Everybody else seems to think they're running this place. <laughs> so he, he agreed with me. I mean, he got it right away. And he was very frustrated because he couldn't get anything done. Because So he invented a position for me, and I then became a vice president of the hierarchy of the administration, vice president of surgical services. He said, here's the budget for all the operating rooms, That's anesthesia, plastics, everything. You're at, goodbye. So I said, fine, I'll do that. That's the start. I said, I'll do that, and then you can give me something more. This is while you're surgeon in chief Jeez, as well. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you talk about change agent. That's, and that's why I called a meeting. I said, okay, folks, we've got the budget. This is it. Let's get to work. And the key point about that was, you know, you want to buy this machine, you're not going to get three nurses, or you're going to three nurses on the machine. You make up your mind. Don't complain later. This is your budget. So I'd done quite a bit of stuff in the two years there. So I, it wasn't as if I went into this hospital milieu. I, well, I had all of two years' experience. <laughs> at, the, at, the, uh, yeah. at the Toronto hospital. Yeah, correct, yes, right. decades' worth of experience. Yeah, in other, of, yeah. right. I guess it might also be useful for our audience uh, at this point to – if you could provide a little context besides the two years and the groundwork you had already started to lay uh, in terms of – shoring up perhaps some of the loose practices, but also in a in a wider context, just I, it seems like there was a shift in the examination of healthcare financing and budgets in the 80s and yes. going into the 90s. Right. Give us a sense, what was shifting? What was changing in terms of how we looked at how we spent healthcare dollars? Yeah, it, it was, of course, immensely important underlying for obvious reasons. I mean, the first thing is to understand how chaotic it was and how chaotic it still is, all right? I mean, the the doctors don't work for the hospital, so that's the first thing. So on the board, you got the head of the Bank of Montreal and said, what do you mean the doctors don't work? Of course they work for them, but they don't. They are credited to the hospital, right? Sorry, that's... that's it, no, exactly. It's so antithetical. Many right? might not understand that. Well, they are fee-for-service. So their uh, incentive... As of mine, I was for is to operate on as many cases as you can, right? As the CEO of the hospital, I'm talking about the financial side of it now, in those days, you got a bag of gold to run the hospital for a year. So my incentive was to look after only one patient. I mean, I'd be crazy to look after two patients. I'm just doubling my expenses, right? There's no, there's no margin. There's no profit. So here we've got the docs who are the main drivers of cost. And the hospital, 180 degrees apart. I mean, what company would ever run that way is absolute craziness. Um, so, and of course, people on the board have a lot of trouble understanding how this works. Now, what you actually tried to do was spend the last dollar on the last patient on the last day. That was what you were trying to do. So, this internal shambles. And of course, the nurses, massive costs. I mean, 75, 80% of your costs are labor. 
that contract was negotiated by the government, not by the board of the hospital, and we just paid what we were. So, I mean, the, the whole financial structure was shambolic and to a large extent remains so today. There have been significant improvements, but it's still completely crazy. Um, then the other part was that because of the system, a very significant number of hospitals ran a deficit because at the end of the year, well, uh, we have, you know, we've got a deficit, we can't look after patients. The government bailed them out. They knew the government was going to bail them out. How long had hospitals been running deficits oh, at that Oh, a time? long, long time. And it was very irritating for those who bust their guts trying to batch balance the budget to see or just forking out millions of dollars to go and resuscitate this hospital. So to answer your question more directly, there was more and more uh, of a concept of we're giving this dollars, what are we getting back? Uh, There was just the start of the concept of, by the way, folks, this was actually about customers, not about providers. There was just sort of a beginning inkling. um, You're talking about... We serve the patient, not necessarily no, the people strange, performing very, the service. Very strange concept. I mean, it was very provider-driven, right? But nobody actually asked patients what they thought. It's like the banks, right? You could go between 10 and 3 to talk to them about their money. It was actually your money, right? And you look at the enormous transformation of banks, totally to customer services, da-da-da, you know. And the enabler, of course, was IT. All of that was possible for the hospital. It's still there. But the hospital never did it, right? So... There was much more of a shift now, and the biggest shift nowadays, of course, is the province has no money. I mean, as of yesterday, I don't know if you noticed, we were down, uh, Moody's downgraded us. Now, we're not in trouble. We're still a very high grade, but it's a definite sign. We are the uh, second or third most indebted entity in North America. I mean, most states are much better off than we are. So there's no money, and the payer, whether the government's paying the docs or paying the hospital or paying the nurses, there's only one payer. That's the whole concept. They bust. They broke. So, uh, so they all this was starting to percolate back in the eighties and, and and then early of course 90s. we had Ray Days and all that enormous excitement because then in fact they really had to make five percent cutback, seven percent cutback. And that's actually when I came in. It was a fairly hectic time. So the financial part of this was actually very important. And of course the board saw this as their in those days as their main function was financial. Right? It wasn't complex. I mean we weren't swapping future cash flows, we weren't dealing derivatives, but just making it actually work mm-hmm. in the shambles was quite difficult. So, so no the, the money part of it is and now is huge. I mean there is no money to pay doctors, there is no money to pay hospitals. So, so it's interesting times. So July ninety one. Yes. You, you move into the president's office of the Toronto Hospital. Right. This is Canada's largest acute care hospital with a half a billion dollar budget. And within weeks of of your arrival, you discover something quite significant. Tell us about that. That was quite hysterical. It was quite funny. So I say, look, I don't know which way up the whole balance sheet. Don't worry. This guy who's on the other side of your office, there was my office, there's a waiting room, a secretary's in his office. He's the chief accountant. He's leaving in two years. He's very experienced. He'll teach you finance. And by the time he goes, you'll know what you're doing, as long as, as, long as everybody's clear on that. So day one, I say to him, all right, let's start. Tell me about last year's annual report, right? Now, you mentioned my previous experiences in various things. Every day of my life, I was asking questions like, what's this patient's hemoglobin? What did that yesterday say show? I, my whole life was asking questions. Most of the people I worked with were brilliant and very hardworking. Occasionally, somebody would like lie, and I could tell within 10 seconds if they were making it up or not. I got so used to it, right? 
So here's this guy. He said, well, let's just start at the Admiral Report. What do these big numbers mean? And I could tell there was something wrong. I thought, okay, I'm stupid, but I'm not that stupid, right? So I thought, we're coming again next day. So the next day, we'd do it all again. And of course, I'm asking very dumb questions, right? Very basic questions. Anyway, or simple. Yeah, well, simple. Simple. Well, that's all I could understand, right? Anyway, within a week, I discovered we have an $11 million problem, which Victor didn't know about. Problem as in Negative. deficit. Yeah, they didn't even know it was there, right? Victor didn't know about it when he left. Or he'd have told me, of course. This guy was my teacher, didn't know about it. This is big money, right? So I forget, I phoned Crosgrove, who was the chairman you just mentioned. And I remember, I remember this very plainly. He was at a barrack board meeting at the Dorchester Hotel in London. So I, England. England. So I called him out of the meeting. I said, oh, Mr. Crosgrove, uh, just as a matter of courtesy, I want to let you know, I've just fired this guy. This was the guy who was going to teach me. <laughs> so he said, why did you do that? I said, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So he's dead silent. And he was very good. He said, well, you better get ready for the first finance meeting of the board. Put the phone down. So which was absolutely hysterical because I thought I was going to be the hero. You know, the new boy discovers this problem. Isn't he great? It's much better than we thought he was. Of course, they killed me. Why is that? Well, I understood later what it was about. They were absolutely correct. On the moment you take over CEO, you are accountable. Right? That second you take over, everything is your But this fault. was previous to your I, coming on board. Matter, doesn't matter. You're it. And I believe that. I agree with them. But the meeting was terrific because— That's I, not how it works in politics. Yeah, well, I know that. <laughs> so, but, uh, so I announced— well, Sorry, folks. So Matt Barrett, who was a terrific friend of mine, who was the chairman of the Bank of Montreal on the board, he kept saying, so like, well, now everyone's shouting in this meeting, right? Where's the CEO? I said, I'm the CEO. No, no, you're the doctor. I said, no, I'm the CEO. And Peter Monk, who became a very close friend of mine, jumped right out of his chair. He stood up. He was shouting red right in the face. I've been bankrupt twice. I'm not going to be associated with a public institution going bankrupt. This was hysterical. This was my first finance meeting. So it, This it, is all over the $11 million uh, well, deficit was, was, you discovered. It was big bucks in those days. Which and would not uh, have been identified if it hadn't been for you. If I hadn't been so stupid and asked so many basic questions. So this was, you know, talk about jumping in the deep end of the swimming pool. It was a fairly interesting few months when I started. But that was, I remember, needed to say, I remember that because it was, it was but hair racing. How did you come out of those, that first meeting or that first financial meeting? Well, you go gray fairly quickly. <laughs> and, of course, each one of these things are enormous learning experiences. You know, how to position something in front of a funny guy. I know how to position Who to phone before the meeting so they know what's coming up. All those sort of things I didn't know to do. You learn in one hell of a hurry, believe me. I see. And so that's your first – that's your start. And within the first few months, it, it would appear you – immediately start sort of this new direction or altered course, as a sailor might say, for the Toronto Hospital. What was what was the impetus for that? Well, the impetus was really, as we were discussing, all the things I'd sort of seen around the world in different hospitals. Mayo Clinic, I was visiting professor, and they were a terrific hospital. So I was watching to see how other people... So the, the Toronto General Hospital, the first thing I asked for, of course, was a vision statement when I sat at home, and nobody knew it. Well, that's a very bad sign, all right? Everybody sort of knew either there, but you want everybody in the place to know where you're going, what you're aiming at. And that includes floor cleaners, nurses, porters. It seems pretty simple. Sort of elementary, all right? So I said, okay, well, I guess we better get a vision statement. So I remember playing, I called Michael Baker, who's senior physician. I said, Dr. Michael Baker, yes. Go away and come back and give me some ideas. So, you know, you held the usual 
meetings and seances and so on. And then he'd come back and I'd write, I don't like that and then go away again. You know, the usual, back forth, back forth. So eventually we got sort of agreement as to where we were at. And then you go to the wordsmithing, was I was insistent this be one sentence, was I hate it when I go into and there's a paragraph. Because then no one can remember what the paragraph is, right? I mean, Harvard is, has by far the best. They only have one word, right? Truth. It's perfect. Um, so we, you know, I'm going to see if I can remember it right. It's quite a long time ago. To be an internationally recognized academic health science center, right? So internal aspiration, but external measurement. The external measurement was going to be world level. Was that a first for this institution? No, they sort of thought it, but it was never really expressed, right? But um, And part of them did and part didn't. It was not a coherent direction for Because you had world first already established in yeah, Toronto yeah. General, the first successful oh, no, no, no. lung transplant. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they were some tremendously capable people, right. obviously. Right. One, one of the attractions of going there, of course. And then the health science piece, it was not going to be a hospital this was because it was now health science. And again, there were terrific researchers there, but it really wasn't enunciated. So getting that down, so I took it to the board, and I was a new boy, so I said, by the way, we need a vision statement. Oh, that sounds terrific. Okay, that's tick, tick, tick. So now the board owns the vision statement, right? So then I come to the, which I'd planned all along, of course. And give it to us again, Alan? Oh, I've got to remember this now. This was, you did pretty good. Uh, internationally recognized academic health science center, right? And every word counts, of course. I mean, that's the wordsmithing part of it. All right. So how did that go over with the board? Well, they, you know, I was a new boy. They got to support the new CEO, and they, got to, they sort of thought that's what we were doing. You know, anyway. So now it was announced. Then I went to the next board meeting and said, "By the way, folks, it's now of course it's now board policy. It's not my policy. It's board policy. We can't do it." So that's when. Well, said, how can you have a vision statement and not be able to uphold well, it? That was the whole point, all right, to get them to realize that. So I said. We will never reach international standards. And, and I take your point. There were world-leading lung cramps, but I'm talking about as an institution. Because the philosophy of those hospitals do everything for all people. You had a complication in Peterborough, you sent it down. You know, and they were very proud of this. And there's absolutely no way you could – these are permits to be world-renowned, right? You need a huge infrastructure, a huge capital investment, not just the stars at the top. So I said we have to – I used to say we have to prioritize our programs. I was then informed there's no such word. It's prioritize. Anyway, I'll keep saying prioritize. So I said, okay, now we're going to decide what we're really doing here. And I called Michael Baker again. And I said, okay, only one marching order. I want the best academic bang for the buck. That's what we're here for. Stop all this nonsense of everybody doing everything. You tell me what we're going to prioritize. And same thing. You know, he held endless meetings and so on. And then we'd chat over a beer, where we, how we were doing. And he came back, and, you know, this was the MAC. They all talked about it for hours. Came back with the four most expensive programs, and what else would he do? And that was cardiac, neuroscience, transplant, and cancer. And I said, okay, that's it, folks. That's what we're going to do here. So then I went to the board and said, okay, now this is what we're going to do. To be able to achieve the vision exactly, you have adopted. Exactly. I see. And this was all part of a nefarious plan of mine. Um, and, of course, all hell broke loose because what do we do if we're not part of the priorities program? You know, all the negative. If we're not part of the – Well, if you say in psychiatry, so now you're not cancer, you're not you – know, now what do we do? So the smart guys, and Gary Roden being extremely smart, head of psychiatry, he got involved in cancer. They became world experts in grieving. So, I mean, the smart guys cottoned on and tacked, tacked on. So this was pretty destabilizing. But if you look now – at you know neuroscience on the top of the world, exactly. biggest biggest transplant program in North America, and just absolutely emphasize 
that was not me, right? I'm like, you got it started. But there were umpteen people since me, and there were thousands of nurses and doctors. So, so I didn't do it. Uh, I steered it that way. You know, be very careful what you claim to <laughs> claim to have done. But that that was a this was a, and that's lasted from then to now. Because when we rebuilt the place, we used those four programs to get the lion's share of the space. So, exactly. So it really, and when philanthropists try to give us money for other things, I said we wouldn't take the money. That was the first test, right? As soon as we did this, somebody tried to give me money for a non prize program. I said, would you mind reframing this in terms of cancer? Which they did. I said, now we'll take it. Uh, so it really started steering the hospital. So, But it, it, the flip side of that, of course, is the groundwork for what we see today that has grown exponentially. Yeah. It goes back to your coming on board in 91. Yeah. That vision yeah, statement. You'd be very careful what you claim, all right? So, you know... There's always if there are hundred. I mean, there are, there are twenty people involved in these big decisions. Sure, sure. And then there are a hundred people. And then there are a thousand people. But, so yes, I mean, I will say what I did, but uh, uh, it had to be executed, and a number of people had to be on board. Oh, and that, of course, is the art of the game. Right. I, I want to, if I, we can, delve into a bit of the color that then was happening as a result of trying to execute that new vision statement into yes. '91, I guess, perhaps into '92, because. As you go forward and publicly announce this vision statement and what it means, you're quoted in the news at, at one time as saying, quote, we cannot be all things to all people anymore. That was the whole point, of course. That may even mean cutback to things like transplants, uh, one of the best-known programs. And you're quoted again in the news as saying, we might have to trash the organs. We're not going to use them. We haven't got the money. And patients will be told, sorry, you're going to die. Pretty provocative stuff from a oh, that was one you know, my, from a health care hospital president. That was one of my most spectacular fiascos. <laughs> uh, that was terrific. I mean, great learning experience <laughs> for me. I mean, the, the actual entity was perfectly straightforward, right? You had a fixed asset, which was the intensive care unit, and it was full of people doing big surgery. They had to have it. And then on top of that, you had an intermittent, unscheduled, occasional in those days, weren't very many transplants. Middle of the night, now we need a, we have to have an ICU bed. There's no space, right? That was the issue. Perfectly straightforward, I and mean, that's what you're supposed to solve. I mean, there's a, But yeah. you don't usually hear that edgy or, or provocative right. statements so, from a, you know, a uni uh, sorry, not <laughs> university, a hospital CEO. Right, so there were several points there. This is a very characteristic thing. Strategy is easy, right? So that's easy. You general surgeons are going to do fewer cases in a week, so there's an empty bed available for the intermittent occasional event. Oh, no, we can't do that. Of course, they couldn't do it. It was meant less income for them, all right? So starting to actually make it work as opposed to what was obvious, was, and to cut it mildly, I was getting a bit frustrated. I won't bore with the details. Frustration with the ICU guys, the surgeons, and so on. And so I was a bit frustrated. But the lessons learned, first for me, was amplification. I, mean, I had no idea when I said something it was going to three through a megaphone because of my position, not because of me. Absolutely. Uh, so that was a tremendous learning experience. I'm a little more careful what I said after that. And the other part was I had, which I, to this day, had no idea as to what constituted news. I didn't think that was newsworthy. I was just trying to get the bloody job done. Uh, and, of course, it, as you say, it was front page in the paper. So it was a terrific learning experience for me. I was going to say, when I read between the lines or the words of those words, it does sound like frustration. Give us give us a sense of what you were the pressures you were dealing with to, and basically execute this new vision statement. Well, so as I'm saying, you know, the, the strategy is easy. That's what we're going to do. 
But you see, you're back to the issue of how people are earning a living. So if you told these citizens they're going to get less, and they get, that's less income, then there's no way they're accepting that. We had the board directive to improve transplant. So that was coming from the board. Surgeons were finding that. Well, they were all in favor of it, but not in my backyard. So, I mean, this is standard hospital stuff. Happens all the time. And I was a little bit green in, green in sorting those sort of things out. I, I had a little bit of a sense that if I said it, that's what was going to happen. Of course, that's exactly what didn't happen. So you had to... You met with some resistance. Putting it mildly. And eventually, we got there. Yeah, we got there. So, I mean, it was part of it. I was green, or totally I was green. Now, of course, I was clueless about how people actually listened to what I had to say from the point of view of the press and so on. I had no idea about that world. Uh, and, you know, I don't regret it, actually. It helped change the events. But it was not exactly a smooth and sophisticated approach to life. I was going to say, it, this is now as a good a time as any <laughs> to perhaps just speak to this, your reputation for a second. Because it was, you know, I was reading through some of the news articles from the time. It was, yeah. you know, you were just, it was described as being, you were described as being open and frank and you pull no punches, even at times as too honest, blunt, even ruthless. Is that fair comment? Well, by definition, it's fair. I mean, if that's what people say, that's what people say. I mean, don't pretend that's not what they're saying. I think a little, and so yes, it is fair, totally fair. A little bit depending on where you sit. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, an example. Right? So, we, okay, Ray Days are going to take seven percent out of the budget. So I say to the uh, head of uh, ER, show me a budget at minus seven. So he pitches up three weeks later at plus two. I said, no, no, you didn't quite hear me. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> See you in a week's time. Comes back, plus two. I was like, okay, one more shot. Comes again, plus two. I said, you're fired. Now, and I chucked him out. And part of that, you can say I'm ruthless. Part of it, I'm in mean, the old, old cliche, the tone of the top, the tone from the top. This is what I stand for. This is what I don't stand for. And you only have to do that once and make a little public fuss of it, and it never happens again, right? So I mean, there were none, nobody played games after that. So if you want to say I was ruthless or I was tough, I didn't think I was. I think I was doing my job. And I wasn't, try- I wasn't trying to be tough. You know, I was just trying to do the job. And, you know, you look at it the other way. You have t- ineffective CEOs. There are two groups. One, everybody loves the CEO. That means he's not making any tough decisions. Or everybody hates the CEO. Which when you can't get anything done, must nobody will work with him. So you've got to sort of pick the spot in the middle, and it slides, right? There are times when you're consensual. So I, you know, I accept whatever people say I accept. Uh, and part of it I'm very proud of, actually. I was going to ask, uh, that those assessments or those yes. uh, opinions yes. uh, of those traits, Perception. of your traits. Perceptions are facts, yes. <laughs> Sometimes. Right. Did they, how did they serve you in leadership? Those traits. Well, you 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 don't want to be tone, tone deaf, right? You need to listen. So when people you trust around you said, "Alan, you've been very tough for the last six months," you know, ease up a bit. You you need to have those people who will tell you and not frightened of you. You know the old cliche: uh, punishment will continue until morale improves. You know, stop that. <laughs> uh, lighten up. So you need. And I had listening posts all around the hospital, right? I mean. Uh, Nurses would phone from the West, and then we've got a niece who's going to kill somebody, do something about it. I mean, I got that information. So I was listening. I was perfectly aware of all those epithets. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, I, I really wanted to say if Alan Hudson says it's going to happen, it happens. You say what you mean, you mean mm-hmm. what you say. Mm-hmm. Um, as my style, but that's what I was anyway. I wasn't putting it on. I mean, I think you have to be yourself when you're a leader. Um, 
And it was a tremendous amount of turmoil, right? It was rainy days, financial problems, mergers, hospital closures. You know, I felt I owed it to the people I was serving that they knew what the hell was going on and what was not going on. So it was all part of that. So, I mean, I, I knew that. I knew this. That's nothing new to me. I knew that. <laughs> You're listening to the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of UHN, the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote from UHN Public Affairs, and today we're joined by Dr. Alan Hudson, president and CEO of UHN from 1991 to two th- or 2000. You open up in the early 90s, not long after your arrival, the Toronto Hospital board meetings to the public. What was behind that move? And what was the impact? Right. So what was behind it? I mean, you know, in Upper Canada and in Ontario, these were white old boys clubs. I mean, they were – these guys met as a gym on the banks or they met at B. Price or they met with – Meatpackers, they're all the same gang, investing in each other's companies and holding each other's hands. Um, and by the way, the, the very prestigious position of being on the board. Of the Toronto of Hospital. Hospital. That was very highly prestigious. That's part of the Peter Monk story. Why is that? Um, it was a fact. Why? I don't know. I guess, but partly, of course, they, they appointed themselves, right? So the nomination process was you decide which of your buddies was coming up next. So I mean, it was a club, all right? And but what was the prestige part? I don't know. Uh, it was. I mean, to be on the board. I guess it was the quality of the other board members. You know, these were the top, these were the leaders, Alf Powers, or the biggest businessmen in Canada. I mean, these were very outstanding individuals. So I guess it was, you know, it was a club you wanted to get into. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, they get, I used to say they were giving us their time for free. That's not true. There's an opportunity cost. I mean, their rate per hour was actually astronomical, which they so they did it at big cost to themselves. And then, and they were all those board members were incredible. I mean, I phoned Peter Monk about something. Five minute delay. Alan, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. I was at the Bundesbank meeting in Frankfurt. I had to stop the meeting. He was serious. But I guess that demonstrates they took this position, a volunteer very position, seriously. very seriously. Yeah, so I don't want to be depreciating. It was a club, but they took it very seriously. Well, I mean, obviously, all sorts of things were happening. Uh, a, this inkling that this was actually about patients and this wasn't about why it was starting to sort of percolate a bit. Maybe a good idea if we found out what. They thought about all this. Uh, there was the whole issue. There were several simultaneous issue of bringing women on the board, which was not directly to the opening part. But when I left, it was 50-50. When I started, there were no women. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one woman, actually. Um, so, uh, and, you know, the idea was the patient, the taxpayer, uh, the customer, it was all the same person. It was actually you and me, right? And we were actually paying for this. And these guys didn't seem to think that was – they weren't representing the shareholders. Right? Well, they were. But, but you understand what I'm trying to get? Said, no, we've got to stop this. So there were a lot of societal changes coming on. So I said, OK, we're going to open the board meetings. Well, of course, this was anathema. Well, they're going to hear what we're talking about. I said, yeah, so that's the whole idea. So we got the – the solve was easy, that there would be – So an, prior to this – It was closed. Public – they were not publicly available me. transcripts or no, anything of the meetings? Absolutely not. Um, so then I said, okay, well, the way we'll do this, we'll have an in-camera session at the end. I mean, this is ABC for any other meeting, all right, but not in the hospital game, so that we can discuss sensitive matters. 
Are you going to fire the CEO or something? You can do that privately. So, and then we actually, if you look at the boardroom structure now, we've, I built a space where the public can sit in bleachers and watch. Uh, and it was, of course, what we were waiting to see what, what actual practical effect did this have. Uh, and it was mainly attitudinal. I mean, at the beginning, people go watch and they stopped going. So it was never, it, it didn't actually amount to much other than the very important point we have open board meetings. And then I added, which was new there, a community advisory committee. And that was a scream because that chairman was, of course, on the board of the hospital. That was the link. And we had a, a wonderful champagne, hypocritical socialist, uh, big NDP figure on the board, which I'd kept brought on because it was totally right. It was so right we're going to fall off the edge of the earth at the beginning. Right? So we made him the head of it. So when we came to the public meeting, which I ran with him, or he ran, he was a chairman, this was aside from the board meetings. They'd all come in to scream at me and scream out, and there was their old buddy Jack in the chair. So that worked quite well. Uh, and again, uh, they taught me nothing. I mean, I was doing the, if they came with information, I didn't know I should be out of a job, right? But it was so good psychologically. They could come and scream and shout at us. You've got to give all the money to ophthalmology because of the cataracts. Then the next meeting, that's you give all the money to us. Well, by the way, you just gave the money away at the last meeting. So when I mean, they were, they started learning a little bit of the realities. They were mainly self-interest groups, you know, the right lung society, the left testicle society, they all come and give us hell. But it, so it actually, I mean, I spent a lot of time in it because I had to go sort of listen to these uh, meetings. Um, but it was very good as opening up the hospital. I don't think it exists anymore, but it served its purpose for a while. So it was an important step. And it, it wasn't just purely symbolic. You sort of no, no. hinted at it uh, a few moments ago is that it began uh, this shift in board governance of the hospital under your leadership that saw the, their role as representing the interests of the patient. Yeah, well, this was going right back to the patient satisfaction side yeah. of things. And, uh, and you know, people begin to realize we didn't have a free health system. They actually paid for it. They were the payers, right? They paid mm-hmm. through your income tax or through your taxes. I mean, that didn't mean they weren't payers. You know, oh, we have a free health, and like hell you do, you're paying for it big time. And they begin, patients began to realize that. And of course, the general knowledge of medicine through social media and so on, or women's journals, you know, people started, understood a little bit more about cancer and so on. The paternalistic doctor, this is what I'm going to do for you, my dear. That changed, and this was another expression of the same thing, the paternalistic board doing what's right for you. It was all part of that era of trying to change from the godlike paternalistic physician, the godlike paternalist, into... I mean, these were social changes occurring in Ontario around, of course, occurring in the world. So you know, these were not things I dreamed up of by myself in the middle of the night. It was happening all around us. Right, this notion of accountability to Absolute, the taxpayer, to the, to yeah. the patient. Right. To the government, of course. To the shareholder, yeah, essentially. The, elect, the elected government, I mean, that's what they're there for. And, and I don't know if I'm skipping ahead, but that did lead, while you were there, to things like scorecards. And yeah. a, uh, that, right, that, so that was a whole, that was a whole, that was another big societal change. You know, I was a doctor, I was the priest, right? And I told you what was going to happen, and you were bloody lucky to have the honor of coming to see me. I mean, that's how that all worked, right? So now we sort of said, okay, actually, now I'm giving you these dollars, what am I getting back? Let's start measuring a few things. Uh, and these were, you know, length of stay, cost per case, da da da. But the part that was so poorly understood was quality. 
which was a terrible word because nobody knew what quality meant. So in you, healthcare, yeah, there was no that, measurement, no well, score. That's the point. Right? Essentially, the moment you start saying this is what we're measuring: infection rates, readmission rates, death rates. Oh, that's what you mean by quality. So, actually, when you mentioned what you were measuring, then it became apparent. But this is not something we had a system in place to uphold these sorts of you things? You were bloody lucky that I operated on you. Nobody actually asked how many, what my death rate was or what my mortality rate or morbidity rate. That was, it was, and again, this was societal. I mean, I didn't dream all this up. But see, the other part of it, being around the world with peripheral nerve stuff and that sort of thing, I mean, I could see in the States, I mean, places like Mayo Clinic had this stuff down pat years ago. I see. Right? So you say, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And furthermore, we need to do it. Yes. And of course, when you become CEO, I mean, if you believe, as I do, that the job description of the CEO is extremely simple. It's one word, everything. <laughs> that means you better have systems coming up to you and in turn that you can take to the board so that you all know what's going on with everything, which means you better start counting things. Now, we were quite weak. In fact, we were very weak in all of that stuff because, you know, we had been measurement we'd been and quality. We'd been doing all sorts of other things. And the, the time came when that really had to be instituted and, in fact, my successor was the one who put a lot of the systems in place, which were all absolutely required. And he was an expert at all that stuff. So, I mean, his role, as he, I mean, he had lots of other very good things, but he was very good at really sharpening a lot of that up. So, it was a very big shift. Uh, let's bring us back timeline. I think we're into the still early years of your leadership. You all also recognize or start to recognize in terms of implementing your vision – uh, the need for space and yes. infrastructure. Right. So I understand you had to get pretty creative and essentially were pioneering some ways to generate alternative revenues. Well, there, there are many elements to that. I mean, to get more space, we gave away obstetrics. I mean, that was a huge chunk. Uh, and very, That's right, because the general used to deliver babies for decades. How, and, of course, yeah. those people give money to the hospital later. And, so on. and now You had to get rid of that. Well, we this I was <laughs> this was part of the health restructuring commission, right? And closing hospitals and realigning things, and and there were other conversations going on with the government, like where are we doing transplants? You know, Toronto, London. It wasn't just our conversation. Part of the issue was Sinai had a a very good reputation for high risk mums and high risk babes. I mean, that was their thing. And if you look at what can you carve out to give room for cardiac transplant. Offer. I get it. You can carve obstetrics out without harming the hospital. I mean, but it's still never, a tough decision. Oh, of course. A very emo huge, I'm sure emotional Well, you can imagine the discussions with the board and so on. So, but, and then, I mean, the worst thing for me, of course, you give the budget with it, right? You don't gain from it. Right? You give obstetrics away, you give the money away. But what I was looking for was expansion space. And I unilaterally gave away the trauma unit at the West, and that was just ridiculous. Um, that went to, to St. St. Mike's. St. Mike's, right. But you see, I mean, that was the government part of it, was the decision, and there were endless arguments, but eventually they came down St. Mike's and Sunningbrook. And St. Mike's numbers were not actually quite high enough, but you need high volume to justify all this. And we had, and I didn't want the neuroscientists at the Western getting up in the middle of the night with people being smashed on the head of the bottles and car crashes, or when they had to... I'm not saying neurotrauma is not important, but it's very distracting, all right? So I said, okay, that's going to some mic. So we did that. We gave – so that was part of it. And then the space piece is what you gave. Yes, Sorry. back to the space and infrastructure <laughs> needs. You might say, would you mind answering my questions? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, so the space – I mean, one, one, oh, that was actually after the – really, we'd done the PMH merge. We'd taken over Dr. Sullivan. So, okay, now we better get our act together. 
So, so, so well, you better get a professional to do a space review, although that's easy. We have gazillions of square feet. Right? To my amazement, they came back with a huge chunk that you can't use. Or buildings falling down or it's inappropriate for modern use. Da, da, da. So, holy smoke. And now we've got these prioritized programs. We've done all these murders. We're all set to go. And actually, to my amazement, we don't have the facility. So, okay, that's easy. Build new space. So, I mean, that's not too hard. So I keep saying uh, strategy. These things are easier. Right? It's just sort of a minor problem. We had no money. So, because um, that's not something you can go cap in hand to government. Oh, you can asking for. They just laugh at you. I mean, they've got they get every CEO in the province is doing the same thing, asking for more money. Ah. Um, so, on the bond piece, you know what a brilliant idea to sell the bonds. It was completely unbrilliant. All the American hospitals are doing it, right? So but I mean, in Canada... No, I know that. But I mean, when I was... Not to... This was not something perhaps well, it, it, people were familiar with. It had never with. been done. In fact, it had actually been done many, many years before. But but I mean, it was quite commonplace in the States. I said, well, what do you do? We sell the bond and build the building. I go, well, we'll do that. So that was pretty easy. I mean, it's not, it's not rocket science, right? So I came back, okay, we can sell a bond. So I take this to the board. How about that? Because they think this is fantastic. This is what they do all day. I mean, they all started as bond tradesmen before they became president of the bank. So, and this was a great relationship with the board. I mean, Bryce Douglas, I mean, he used to be a bond trader, and Tony Fell, and these guys, they all come charging in. Because they know I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so we have to write the prospectus. And then Fraser Fell, who was then the chairman, he was you know, very renowned in town as a very senior businessman. So I carried his briefcase. We went to visit all the Houses. Houses being financial oh, institutions. Exactly. Yes. And then uh, the only one who turned us down, and I have great respect for him, and he's unfortunately died, was Nisbet Burns. And he looked at the deal. And they all said, oh, Fraser, it will shake Fraser. And we all know he's on the board, so this is going to be fine. I mean, who cares? Who this How is? would the bond work, work, by the way? Well, this was the point, right? I mean, the essential point is what's the backstop, right? Where's the final backstop? Yes. So when I went to see Harris... Uh, about Harris is premier, Mike Harris. Mike Harris. So, uh, well, you can do this, but absolutely essential will not be on the province's books. So, well, fine, okay. Of course, then the next point is on whose books is it, right? And of course, of course, of course, the stellar board. I mean, this is anybody going to invest in this and look at the board? It's fantastic. They are actually are not the entity owning the hospital, right? So now this gets quite tricky. And the only person who saw that was Steck, the late Steck, ahead of Nesbitt, and said, I won't take the deal. Everyone else was falling over themselves to take the deal. And he was right. So, um, Meaning? Well, where was the backstop? All right. I mean, this is the key. I mean, anybody wants to know if these guys go bust, who's paying me back the money I've lent them, right. right? So. Essentially, there was no guarantor. Well, this is the point, right? So we were sort of quietly trying to. Mon- not raise that not particular raise that issue. Particular part. <laughs> yeah. So we're, I never forget Hazel uh, Harris, well, Mike Harris, Premier Harris, I should call him, got off the plane from China. I never forget. He came to the hospital, Mulock Lock and Wing, which we then tore down, of course. And he stood there and said, I'm announcing this bond. You know, the reporter's not stupid, right? First question, where's, where's the backstop? And he was very good. I mean, he, he, he was excellent. He said, the only way this issue can fail as if the government of Ontario fails. So, in other words, look through the board to the government. He didn't actually say it's not on the government's books. Right. Anyway, when we got near to the very end, I mean, this was a huge amount of work by everybody, of course, I didn't know what I was doing, but everyone came to make it work. Oh, then the next thing, the real excitement came. 
uh, I had to appear in front of the rating agencies. I mean, that was a scream. So I say to Fraser, I, you know, Moody's and all these other guys coming to rate this one and so on. Uh, are you free tomorrow at 11? That they coming every half hour? And he said, oh, Alan, you don't understand. They're coming to see you. <laughs> so you've got to be kidding me. Anyway, so that's what it was. They, the, the radio agents all pitched up, and, you know, I managed to bluff my way through it all. And the, high, the most, if you want to record this, is record history. This is the most important event of my entire time as CEO. I got a better rating than Peter Monk did. I had a bet with him for five bucks. And I was on his board, actually, his real estate board, the Trisicon board. And, of course, and he was had, you know, huge real estate teaching all around the world. I said, I'm going to get a better rating than you do. And I did. I took five bucks off him. So you should make sure that's recorded. That's my main <laughs> achievement. Taking uh, $5 off Peter Monk. Yes, as a bet, because we got a better rating. So that was, as I say, a very good example. I mean, it was not a brilliant idea. It was common. It was unusual in Canada. Well, and the, the other part of this, I mean, to, in, to get you to get with the money, we decided to sell the College Street wing because that was completely useless for anything hospital-wise. But this was a very important because that infrastructure goes back to 1913 or something, say, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the whole concept in North America was to get rid of the the proprietary medical schools, most of them were fake, all right, and settle into university medical schools. And Hopkins in Baltimore, this was the, the, the leader to bring the hospital next to the university, both you know, figuratively and realistically. And now we're going to have a hospital-university concept. It was a whole new game, all right? If you go to Baltimore and you look at the facade, it's the same as the one here, because it was the same time. It was the same thought. So that real estate was a very important part of our history. But I thought, look, if I can sell that because the, you know, you get money in 10 seconds flat, it was prime real estate land. So, of course, took that to the board. You can just imagine that board meeting didn't go too smoothly um, because they were going to sell your heritage and all that sort of yes. stuff. So, you know, that's easy. I'll, I'll, you know, we'll get a couple of condos, get set up a movie house and a brothel and we're done. I mean, <laughs> one day, all right. The, the, the money was easy. And I thought, this is stupid. So I called David Naylor, who was the dean, and I said, just come down here. And we, and we had little cardboard cutouts of the thing. I said, look, I just want the cash, but you and I will never, ever have an opportunity like this again. And he said, you're right. I'm coming tomorrow with John Evans, who was his mentor. Right? I said, okay, I'm coming tomorrow with Tony Fell, who was the incoming chair on the board. He wasn't the So we did, literally, next day, there were four of us in the room. And, of course, these two geniuses immediately saw the game. The next thing, I'm in a meeting with uh, Evans, uh, Joe Rotman, all the big shots in town, the old, the hydro building, the new old hydro building, and the Reichmans. Reichmans, and this is the most important corner in Toronto. This is college and university, right? We're going to build a whole new city from Young Street to Bathurst because it's the province and the university own the whole, both sides of the road, right? The old city will be on downtown Bay Street. This was Reichman, Canary Wharf, just flowering out of the ideas. And all these hot shots, I, mean, I put my hand up at the end, and then they were like, who's this guy in the corner? I said, could I just remind you, gentlemen, all I'm interested in is cash. And uh, they all laughed like hell. Anyway, then, but then I quit. That was a stage I quit. So that part, so I was not part. Of the um, development of, of Mars. the Mars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I, felt like I was talking to Bob Bell the other day, and he was saying what a big success Mars had been and what a great idea it had been on mine. And we both agreed I should claim it. I actually had nothing to do with it. So uh, anyway, so that was 
that was the financing piece to get all the new buildings built. Well, take us back to this first issue of, of the first bond. Like, yeah. how, how big was it and what, what was it for? 281 million bucks. It's due in very soon, I think in about four years' time, it's due. I think it was 5.1. Uh, it went out in 10 seconds. I mean, in fact, there was shouting and screaming, which again, I was amazed at. At the people, you know, there's a lead, and then there's two in the next line, three in the next Well, you know, much more about this than I do. And, of course, by luck, thank God, the only major institution not on the board, Bank of Montreal was on the board, Tony Feld, Royal, everybody was on the board. The only one not on was Scotia, and they were the lead. So that was a bit of a fluke. We, we, there was no conflict. But, I mean, I know Tony Phil called his staff in at his usual 6 o'clock meeting the next morning, and they all hell for not having got the deal. I mean, it was amazing. But anyway, it went it went out very easily. So then we had them, and, and then I then hired a New York architect. That got me into trouble again, was I didn't hire a Canadian architect, but we, modifying old buildings and building new buildings with, is a real art. Expertise, is not, yeah. yeah. And they were fantastic. So, you know, we knocked down the bell, and we knocked down the middle wing, and one of the more brilliant moves. The, the, there was an old courtyard with a gravel middle of the west. Oh, are we going to arch that over and make that the center? Which they did. That's now the center of the hospital. And they were very yeah. intuitive. Um, it was their game, of course. Of course, why I hired That big foyer, yeah, yeah, yeah. open that air That was foyer. a gravel pit. I mean, there were wings oh. around there. You'd walk around wing, then another wing, and then another wing. Now you walk into it. As the center, uh, that was so that idea. joint, that open air yeah, yeah. atrium that, that we see now was, that was joined. Their, that was their everything. idea. That was yeah. their idea. And, and the so the you're talking about over the general, you're talking about the old laundry building. Well, and the, the I laundry. was in the, my office was in the bell wing. Yeah, where was the bell wing? So that was the corner of Gerard University, right? Ah, so that's gone. So that was knocked New down. York Lockett was at the other corner of the university, and that's gone, etc., uh. etc. Et and up came the new clinical building. And then we read Norman Urquhart. I used to have a ward in there as a neurosurgeon. Um, that's now totally outpatient. So we repositioned, refunctioned some parts, rebuilt other parts. Mm-hmm. And the same with the West. And of course, PMH was growing up in front of us. I mean, as a brand new building, that didn't need anything new. Uh, but so that was a that was a very big part of it, and the other but the board were terrific because I had when I did the PMH merger I tried to make it a reverse takeover so that people felt more comfortable. So I took the top finance lady from PMH, made her the head of finance for one became UHN, and so on. She was terrific, but you know these were getting pretty big financial risks, pretty big. And I said when, when she said to her, Okay, you can either run the buildings or you run the finance. You can't do both. It's getting too big. And the board could see this as well. And Tony, um, Peter Monk said, okay, I'll give you. And he gave me the guy who actually was running the CN Tower, which Peter Monk owned. He'd come, and, he'd come to all your meetings and make sure was it, they knew the developers were going to kill us. right? And, they, so put, and then uh, the guy who put the Giller Prize, Jack Rabinovich, mm-hmm. I mean, they put a huge amount of time coming to the meetings, so the board were happy that they knew they had some real pros there, that we weren't going to be killed by the developers. And then I had superb staff, this lady I was mentioning. So between all of it, we got it done. And then, of course, I said the prioritized programs, I mean, they came to me where there was no, there was no transplant floor. So what the hell are you talking about? This is a prioritized program. It was very small in those days. Hmm. I said, you come back with a full, well, that is, that's what it means. And then when the rest is history, it is now, it is, you know, they have a huge piece of the chip. Exactly. So that was a very important part of changing the concept 
to the strategy, but as always, it's the doing that's the hard part, and that's what we did. Over the course of your leadership, what what was your approach to the board? How how you interacted? Well, with of course, I never heard of board. a board in my life. I mean, as a neurosurgeon, you know, you well, as a surgeon, you're in charge. You're in charge. That's a diagnosis we're operating. You know, not going to a board to have a chat about it. So I was not. <laughs> I wasn't used to this. Um, and then, of course, the other point is, what is the function of the board? Right? Uh, and in those days, I mean, Matt Barrett was the chairman of the board and the CEO. Right? So there was still little. Little discussions of how in now, their companies, in in general, I mean, the Cadbury Commission in England so put a lot of work into this, and it settled out that you could have a board and a CEO. And then the other question: What's the function of the board? Right? And our board was phenomenal because they were all ex CEOs, so they knew the game. Right? So I'm a three question board. Right? Question one: Is the CEO doing a decent job? Yes. So question two: How can we help the CEO do his job? If the answer is no, who's sitting on the search committee for the next CEO? And that's actually what they do, right? Hiring and firing a CEO being the most important part. And, of course, they own they own the big strategies. These guys understood that. They didn't try and run the hospital. In fact, what they wanted was someone to run the hospital mm-hmm. as opposed to some other hospitals in town, which were actually a joke where the board actually thought they were running the hospital. Of course, none of them knew how to run a hospital. I mean, they knew a lot of other things. So, I mean, I had an ideal board and who, who never interfered and if ever I wanted to, I mean, I'd go down to Matt Barrett in the Bank of Montreal. I'd, I'd, I'd phone and say, when's he coming out of this meeting? Three minutes, right? I said, Matt, we got to, you know, what do you think of this problem? So there's a standard response. First 30 seconds, three major jokes, Irish stories and so on. Then he'd say, read this book. I mean, he'd read about five or six books a week. I used to read about two a week. And, you, and then he said, well, think about it this way. And then he'd charge over into his next meeting. But that, one minute, two minutes was gold. Right? You had to be listening very no, 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 intently. But he, but he was giving me the – and same with Peter Crosby. They, they were letting me into their experience. Peter Crosby, you know, was on the board of Mellon Bank, the board of Premdor, the biggest board company in the world. He was on the board of Barrick and so on. I mean, he, he knew his way around. He was a street fighter. And so, you know, if I phoned him and said, what the hell do we do now? He, he never told me. He, he always helped me. So I had – and then what was extraordinary was, um, you know, on these social levels, I didn't – normally cavorted with multimillionaires. So I got to know quite a lot of them, and they all, many of them, those who aren't dead, are still very close friends. It was, a, it was a very, and I was just dead lucky because I've seen so many boards and the boards fighting the CEOs, and it's just awful, and very much to the detriment of the institution. So I was just dead lucky. I just had, I had Fraser Fellow followed Peter Crowell, then Fred Eaton, who had just come back. Fred started as chair of the finance committee, he goes, Alan, I'm leaving. I said, oh, Christ, you've just started here. Well, Mulroney has offered me the High Commission in London, and it's either chairman of the Finance Committee or the High Commission. I think I'll take the High Commission. Okay, you can go. <laughs> so <laughs> I, didn't, go. I had a long time with Fred as chairman, which, you know, he was very experienced. So. You're listening to the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of UHN, the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote from UHM Public Affairs. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alan Hudson, president and CEO from 1991 to 2000. So, Alan, I want to move into the mid-90s. Um, I, I, there's, I, I guess an idea starts to percolate in the mid-90s that Princess Margaret would be an asset that would make sense being a part of the Toronto Hospital, right. which is at that time Toronto Western, Toronto General. Take us through that gambit 
Right. Well, how did that get started? It, it started uh, as a neurosurgeon, right? Because I had operated on somebody, and then they were saved from Sudbury. Then they had to come back and see me, you know, I had to follow up. Then, of course, they had radiotherapy after the surgery. Then they had to come back to PMH, et cetera, et cetera. The old story, provider driven. Nobody thought of this poor patient coming back to Sudbury umpteen times. And so I thought, well, this doesn't work. There's actually one patient. It's not a radiotherapy patient. It's not a surgical patient, and so on. So I was quite dissatisfied with the way we were serving our patients with cancer, which was a huge problem. Right? So that was step one. Then step two, I'm sitting in the bell wing. I look across the street, and there's this big concrete things going up, which is the new PMH. So then the next thing is I look at who's the chair on the board. And at St. Mike's, we had a lady come in who was 90% dead with a very, very dangerous aneurysm in the back of her brain, you know, very, very high. And I had operated a very difficult operation, kept in and about three weeks later she woke up and she made a complete recovery, which was very lucky. But each day, every night at the bedside, I was with the husband. Guess who's the chairman on the board at PMH? Oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. This woman's husband. This, this is a piece of cake. He knows me. He knows me very well. We will do this merger in 10 seconds, all right? This is really, nothing could be easier. So that was the genesis of dissatisfaction. And then the, the, the idea was to get an integrated cancer program. Because, you see, PMH pretended they're doing cancer. Of course, they weren't doing cancer, right? If you're a cancer patient, 80% chance of having some sort of surgical intervention, 50% radiotherapy, 50% systemic therapy. But it was all, you know, they, everyone thought they were doing cancer. They weren't. They were doing part of the cancer. So the concept was an integrated cancer program. The patient in the middle, everybody looking after the same patient. Then the opportunity was this complete fluke. To bring Princess Margaret into the So fold. that was why I wanted to do it. But the fluke was, I thought this was going to be easy because I know the chair of the board. It turned out to be two years of desperation. It was so difficult. Um, but that's how it started. So both the, the concept of what we were trying to do and my completely mistaken idea that this was going to be an easy move. Uh, so anyway, we eventually got there. We got there. When did that finally come to its conclusion in terms of bringing? Quite, quite. I can't remember the dates now. And in fact, it's a good question because when did it happen? I mean, did it happen when we did a halfway step to have a common cancer committee between the two sides. Did it happen only? This was stepwise, stepwise, stepwise. Then a finally an agreement that the next board meeting would be a joint board meeting. That was a pretty key step. And then the final piece is the act of parliament, which created the new entity, right? So I mean, which date? But it, it was much more towards the end of my time there. But we got it. We got it across the line. It was one hell of a struggle. And it, but it, it dovetailed certainly into the priorities. But it was all part of the, the concept, yeah. I and mean, that's why I thought the concept of the vision. I mean, don't forget, part of this is post hoc reasoning, right? You put it all together and say what a wonderfully logical story this is. And you know as well as I do, that's not quite how it happens. I mean, you sort of stumble along, but but, uh, you know, but we did have the idea. That was the idea, and it's not quite as neat as all that. But that's where we got to, and it was terribly important. It was hugely successful. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, mid-90s, there's another uh, initiative that uh, is, comes under your watch is the, the establishment of the, of the first chair in women's health. Yes. Tell us about how that came about. Well, again, it was you know something I get credit for, which I did absolutely nothing for, which is a fairly easy way to do it. Out of the blue – we got a big bequest from the states. Where the hell this came from? Suddenly, it was several million bucks. 
So, so what do we do now? So this was all part of my idea of not talking about it, but getting the board, women on the board, getting water and senior levels and so on. Um, okay, so let's do something in women's health. This was part of that general concept. And of course, in the meantime, this was a complete fiasco with women's health board being thrown out. That's a whole other side story, which I was involved in. Um, so, okay, let's do it. So I then said, well, okay, how about a chair in women's health? The first in the world, right? And I also knew one of the few people who could pull it off, who was a psychiatrist at St. Mike's. I knew her because I'd been at St. Mike's, right? So I, I had someone in mind who could pull this off because this is women's health, this is women's politics, this is feminism, you name it. It's a complete, it requires it's a multi-faceted performance. So that's what we did. And I mean, she over-fulfilled what I thought she would do and was, of course, a thorn side of Women's College because she kept producing. She was famous. She was, she was in Saudi Arabia. She was all over the bloody place. And Women's College was fighting yesterday's battles. So it was all another part of the... the uh, fabric of what we did. We should, anyway, we should give this woman her due. Oh, no, Do- absolutely. Dr. Donna Stewart. Yes, this woman. <laughs> we, we should name her. <laughs> this woman. <laughs> no, she's a very close personal friend of mine. In 1997, you bring a researcher named Chris Page yes. on board to revamp the Toronto Hospital's approach to research. Right. Tell us about your reasoning behind that. Uh, yeah, well, this started actually when I was appointed surgeon chief. I, I was Back not, in 89. Yeah, so I was not yet on board, but I was appointed. There was a board retreat at Godrich. And Alf Powers, who was, I think, was the head of the biggest conglomerate in Canada, he was the chairman of the board. He said, well, why don't you just come to this board retreat and sit in? You know, you're going to come. So I'll take you. I thought, That's great. He takes me in his private jet. So, I mean, we can scarcely get off the ground when we have to land in Goderidge. So, it was interesting. This is how the Toronto General Hospital works. So, it's quite impressive. Anyway, I sit in the back trying not to be seen. And I can tell you the names of the people who produce a motion to the board at this retreat that the Toronto Hospital will not have a research institute a la SickKids, a la Sinai, both of whom had very successful yeah. I mean, Sinai was the research institute plus a small hospital. I mean, that's what they were famous for. Sick kids were both hospital and research. We were not going to do that. Thought, Why? These people are crazy. Oh, well, now you want the stated reason or the real reason? The this stated, this stated is for re- historical purposes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends which one you believe. So, I mean, the theory is you sit in your lab and a mold flies through the window and lands on the plate, and you discover penicillin, right? This is curiosity. You discover? Penicillin. This is curiosity research, right? That's the theory. The reality was, if I got a grant, I don't want someone telling me that they want to see who's signing the checks for who. I don't want any accountability. I'm not particularly sure I want any ethics accountability. da 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 No, I want to run my own show. And by the way, these people were very good, right? But they didn't want someone coming oversight. That was the reality. Right? So when I took over, I thought, this is nuts. I mean, here we're, trying to, we're going to be world famous, and we have idiosyncratic personal research popping around. And by the way, some very good people. Right? I, mean, I keep saying these things. I don't mean to depreciate the good people there. I'm depreciating the bad people there. Um, so I thought, well, this is absolutely bloody nonsense. Well, sorry to interrupt. Up to this point, late 90s, after you've gone through, the, in the early part of your leadership, the priorizing of programs, 
Did research at that time dovetail into those prioritized programs? Yes. I mean, as you say, the research that led to the first lung transplants. Correct. That was there, but it was spotty. And some of it was very high quality. I mean, but as an institute, I mean, in the, in the world of mega science, this is big time. You're not playing games here. This is big capital costs, big support, big infrastructure to make it work right? at that level. So you can't say you're going to be the best in the world in cancer if you haven't got a. Now, OCI is a very good example. OCI had a very good research outfit. It was OCI PMH. I mean, the beds were an afterthought. It, that was a researcher in days gone by. It was very, and now it is, of course, today again. So so when I came out as CEO, this is nuts. We've got to change that. And I had a false start through some poor judgment on my part. I chose a very capable person who didn't suit the job. So about a year later, I had to get rid of her. And then at that time, the Wellesley was closed, closed by the hospital restructuring. Chris was the researcher, and he actually was hired by Sunningbrook. Chris was at the Wellesley. En route to Sunningbrook. And Wellesley closes, and he is selected by, by Sunningbrook. So I had to have a little meeting with Chris and explain to me yeah, his geography mixed up, and he was actually coming to UHN. This is news to him. Of course. So um, that was very complicated because Chris had uh, – his, his work is so fundamental. It can apply to cancer. It can apply to – Inflammation and so on. It's like mathematics can apply to physics and astronomy and so on. It was very basic stuff. So he was actually had a very big arthritis element. So we had to recite, I think, three or four arthritis docs. Some went to the Sinai and some went to the West, and we had to do all sorts of things. Like I couldn't care less. I just want to get Chris, right? Said, do what you like, get the deal, which we did. And I said to Chris, okay, here's what you do you create a holistic, major part of the hospital for research. And he said, well, I can't do that. And, and I mean, this, to my credit, I actually listened to him. It's a bit surprising. Uh, <laughs> what was his Well, he uh, said, you can't, you can't do it. And, and, and he said, you know, I'm sort of fairly small potatoes coming from the Wellesley and so on. So then we, you know, we sorted off that he would start at OCIPMH, in part because he trained there. Now, the other part, Chris had spent, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years in Bern in Switzerland in a huge commercial place. I mean, he knew what mega science looked like. Well, that's, of course, one of the reasons I wanted him. And so I said, I, I don't care how you start. So you could start at PMH, but by the way, I wanted Western General PMH. And that's exactly what he did. So You're talking about he established he research institutes. In each place and then a combined institute. He's really set the whole thing up. So instead of five plus five, which was a normal, I mean, we just closed our eyes and he went on forever. Uh, he was very unpopular. Well, what is the impact of creating institutes? Oh, in terms it, it's, of- it's all in line with the prioritization of what you're doing. Right. So now, now we have a whole new world of molecular biology, right? So this is, going, of course, going to be explained to us what causes cancer. So you have all your – that aligned is where we're going to cure cancer. Uh, neuroscience, all sorts of new things happening. This is – this pyramid I was talking about, uh, that was the whole point of prioritizing right from the word go. And uh, Chris did a fantastic job. I'm just, he's an unsung hero. And <clears throat> that's you see today. Because we have now uh, research institutes for the general, the Western, PMH. And an overarching research strategy, which is a board strategy and a CO strategy with a, now a head, a VP, which used to be Chris. Uh, so now you have a coherent 
whole, which is absolutely essential if you're going to make really big uh, impact. I suppose, though, with hindsight, it, it, it probably seems almost you know, surprising to us that that didn't exist when you first came on board. A lot of surprising things about healthcare. <laughs> what is rational is very unusual. Uh, late 90s, I think, or 97, 98, were also, it was a period where the doctor's hospital, yes. which probably many of us, or many people don't remember, was absorbed by the Toronto Hospital, correct? Right. So there were, there were more, there were about two or three of these. These were frequently staffed by Eastern European doctors. It was part of the immigrant, immigrant story of Toronto. They were actually multi-speciality clinics primarily. Mm. Um, and in my earlier youth in this job, I'd actually gone to them and say, look, why don't we merge you with the Western because you're right next door. Uh, this makes sense. And in any of these games, the key is what do you do with the other CEO? I mean, that's the beginning and the end of the entire thing, right? So I said, right, you can be the head of all of outpatient work at the whole of what was going to become UHN was Toronto Hospital. And he turned it down. He's a good guy, and that's his choice. So we, we got nowhere with that. Then the Health Restructuring Commission was going to close the Wellesley, the Western, and doctors. And so umpteen suits back forth, back forth, not with us, but with the government and so on. And eventually, the Health Restructuring Commission ordered them, and was a judgment then in the court, that we would take them over. So I thought, okay, that's what I want to do in the first place, but we're not going to do this. Privately, we're not going to do this as a takeover. We're going to do this as a merger because it's sort of been insulting to them to take the takeover. So <laughs> it's quite funny. I looked for someone to do this. It was a fair job, a fair amount of detail. So I had a very smart apple lady, lady I should, and she came from McKinsey, right? Very, very high. Management ex yeah, I mean, company. Yeah, I mean, very high-level consulting. Consulting, right? right? I said, here's what we'll do. You run this as a merger for a year, and then I'll decide whether I got to hire you or not. And she, of course, she did a spectacular job and merged it seamlessly with very little. And this was brought into the fold at Toronto Western, correct? Well, it was actually brought into the Toronto Hospital, right. Right, right, but to be practical, into the Western. Right. Uh, there was very little blood on the floor. And there was a lot of self-selection. I mean, she did it so beautifully. Quite a few of the doctors said, well, the hell, I don't want to work in the teaching hospital. That's why I worked there. I don't want to work there with the, all these committee meetings and all this rubbish. So they went off and worked somewhere else. Then some moved over and sort of became part of the fabric. And one person moved over and was completely unacceptable. That's another story. But so that's how we did it. And in fact, it was one of those things in my life, much ado over nothing. I mean, nobody knows it even happened anymore. It was totally, no. totally yeah. inconsequential. Yeah. We spent a lot of time on it, a lot of ink on it. And then they reinvented themselves uh, using money from the foundation, which I never chased. This was interesting. Uh, in the in the takeover, it was a little unclear whether we got the money from their foundation or not. And You're I talking said, about Doctors Hospital yeah, had a foundation, of course. I see. And I said, let it go. I mean, I'm not going to enough bloody fights as it is. And they used that to reinvent themselves as the Kensington Clinic. And in another life, when I got into white times and cataracts, I worked with them to form this huge factory for cataracts, which was very high quality, very high volume, exactly what we needed. So I came around another stage of my life into that game subsequently. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I, you mentioned the foundation, and I actually, 
was going to bring it up later, but it seems like a good time to bring it up. The relationship of the president, CEO, and the foundations here, what's, what's, what was your approach to them? The approach to them then and the approach now is quite different. Anyway, when the West merger merged, they simply slapped the boards together. Of the foundation. Of, so no, was, of the hospital to slap the boards together. Right. Now we have one board. Not a very sophisticated Cor- way of doing it, but correct. because these are voluntary boards, da, da, da. it worked quite well, actually. And then over time, came down in size. The decision was made to merge the two foundations, the Toronto Western Hospital. Subsequently, with Chris, I actually inherited the Arthritis Foundation. So we had a few more sort of add-ons. And uh, then it was very carefully done that the head of the Toronto Western General Foundation was a member of our board of the hospital. So, the, I mean, this gets a little bit tricky from legal institutions. These are separate institutions, right? Correct. But I was insistent that they reported, which meant I kept track of what the hell they were doing, right? And in particular, that they aligned themselves with our prioritizations. They don't get money for things we don't want. And, right. and then also they don't try and drive the hospital. When I took over PMH, at one stage, I seemed to think that their foundation thought they were running the hospital. So it took me a little – I'm being rude. I took me a little while to disabuse them of that fact. But, I mean, they were very generous people, giving a huge amount of time and huge amounts of money and not surprisingly thought they were running the hospital. So I had to explain they weren't. Um, well, how did you manage these foundations then? Well, you have to work at each of these issues. I, the structural part I mentioned – now, this, by, by the way, the foundation of the PMH was a very important concept, right? When we merged PMH, and this led to the whole concept of UN, UHN. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I don't know nothing about any of this stuff. This is a little market survey. So I found out market penetration, only two, right? Sick kids and PMH. You're talking about the name recognition exactly. was really – In the world. What? In the world. Everyone knew about sick kids. Yeah. Right? So it would be nuts to then put them into our foundation and lose that – I mean, that again, that brand. not exactly too much brain work required for that. Right. So they stayed separate. Their foundation stayed separate. And the other came together. And that's, Toronto Western, Toronto yeah, General. Yeah, correct. That, that's how that's the format. Right. And then when we went to the UHN format, that was part of my spiel. Keep your name, keep your function, keep your foundation. Right? I want to get into that. But I'm just curious how what, – what's the relationship like for the president – with these foundations in well, terms was, of it, guiding them. Well, in, in my day, I mean, I just took charge, right? And, I mean, what you had That to, doesn't sound surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was part of the hiring of the incredibly talented lady. At the, you know, done all, all these people have done fantastic stuff. Yeah, with Tennis Hanson. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, but Nick, I, you know, I spoke to them. I mean, we said, well, I say to this is what we want to do. Give us a hand. Or they said, let's go this job. You know, we said, I'll have tea together. I mean, it wasn't adversarial, we were no. working together, right? And, and I mean, so that's, and part of it was a structure the way we set the board up. So it, it actually worked, uh, I mean, you could say outright, there's only one reason for the foundation to be there, support the hospital. You're not there because of your entity unto yourself. No. That's the only reason you're there. So I said that a few times. Um, there is a phenomenal amount of money, don't they? Oh, I mean, you know, we talk about these numbers. These are post-tax dollars that people are giving. I don't care how wealthy you are. I mean, Peter Monk ended up giving us 100 million bucks. You know, I mean, that's huge. And, and for that matter, the 1 million, 2 millions are huge amounts of money. 25 bucks could be huge to some people, right? I mean, this is uh, unbelievable generosity. And, you know, there's a professional side to doing that. 
and I watched, I watched really at the beginning of all this, I was watching Delandria with Pritchard at the university, right? Which was a huge success story. Pritchard said he was going to raise a billion dollars for the university. Delandria did it. And I watched a, a real pro, and Pritchard was no slouch either, uh, how, they, how they did it. Pritchard and is who? He was the president of the university. And then I, we hired Tannis from that shop. Tennis Hansen. Yeah. Oh, from U of T. Yeah, that's where that's where, because I was so impressed with the way they'd done it. Probably a little context is perhaps useful. I know it might be a bit of a sidetracking a bit, but perhaps a lot of people don't understand the role of the foundation in terms of why they're essential in terms of the research side. Well, of okay, that, that's a very important, very important. Point. And a lot of us perhaps. I didn't know that before I no, came no, into no, no. work in absolutely, public affairs. Absolutely critical point. It's actually what makes the place great, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the way this works, when you want to apply for a, a really big grant. To do research. To do research. You have to show these guys some data. I mean, they're not, I have this brilliant idea. Well, so what? Everybody's got brilliant ideas. Show me your initial experiments. Show me the results. Show me that if I give you this grant, there's some minor hope it will actually succeed, all right? So, so how do you do that? So when the philanthropist gives you the money to start it, to buy the equipment, then you get your then you go to feds and national health and so on. So it is absolutely critical the whole seed money side of it. There's another side to it. I mean, I was always trying to have the rubric. I don't want the foundation ever supporting something the government should support. I mean, that's not why you're giving philanthropic dollars. The government should pay for that. You don't pay for that. But all that what we're talking about is things the government's not paying for. Which is? Well, if you're in the States and you get a big grant, you get all your costs and your secretary and your space and the roof of the building and the elevator and so on. Yeah, you don't get any of that, right? So you get the money for the project. Well, who the hell's None paying, of the infrastructure. Who's paying for all the lab assistants and so on and so on. So you can't do it here without philanthropy, seed money, infrastructure money. And the, one of the problems there was to try and get unrestricted grants. Now, you see, I'm going to give you a grant to solve cancer of the prostate. Well, no, I can't actually spend that on refurbishing the waiting room. And so, so we needed unrestricted grants, which is give us the money and we'll work out. So, I mean, I'm pleased you raised this. This is not an option. You can't be an internationally recognized academic health science unless you have a very vigorous uh, group, groups. I think there are five there now. Um, no, no, they are absolutely critical. And the key, which needs a little bit of attention now, is actually the relationship between the hospital and the foundations that everyone stays in sync. That's actually fairly easily fixed. And Kevin Smith is absolutely brilliant, superb new chief. He'll fix it up in no time. We're getting towards the end of your leadership reign at, at <laughs> Toronto saying, Hospital. You say you're getting the end of this interview, thank God. <laughs> And you embark on this rebranding yes. of the place, which is kind of, you, you know, you've hinted at, this is not really your forte. What was behind the move? Well, that's sort of putting it very mildly. You're very polite. Uh, well, my guess, with no data at all, that the Toronto Hospital, I mean, I just saw it, you know, two scotches, let's call it the Toronto Hospital, that's it, all right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's not, I, mean, I think that's what happened. I, I don't have no evidence for that. You're talking about back in the mid 80s when Toronto Western long, emerged. Long, with long Toronto before General. I was there. Right? Yes. My daughter is an, an MBA. She worked for Procter Gamble. I mean, I watched to see how very carefully that whole marketing game was played. Of course, I knew nothing about it. And then I watched other people marketing and so on, and, and lo, you know, logos. What is the, 
what is the brand, what's the, all that sort of stuff I knew nothing about. But it was very interesting, of course. It's very interesting how some people succeed and others don't. So I then realized I knew nothing, so I thought, okay, I better get somebody. But what was the impetus behind you even looking? Well, you see, we had this sort of shambles now. We'd merged the PMH, we'd taken over doctors, we'd done all this restructuring. We, re we had to sort of settle things down into now that we're actually going to pretend we're grown-ups, we're actually going to try and go, you know, as an entity. So I hired a genius, a guy called Michel, uh, who worked for Ove, was the name of the... Uh, the company, they'd done the Bank of Montreal, all the, you know, the signage of the Bank of Montreal, all that stuff was theirs. And I was quite impressed with what he'd done. So I said, okay, you better come in, you're going to design the logo. So he looked at it, I said, are you crazy? What are we logoing, you know? And then, so then we, we, we had done for months, you know, what, 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 what is your promise? What is the brand? And we meant I had the enunciate, well, I had done a bit of an unsaid. Well, you had that. the vision statement. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I knew what I wanted to do. But I, so he kept pushing, pushing, pushing appropriately. And then he said, well, now, the part we don't, I don't understand is what is the structure of this new thing? And I said, well, that's a good question. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time, he and I, arguing. And because he'd done so much commercial work, I mean, he'd seen companies, structures. And who is this again? Sorry? Michelle. He's, his first name is Michelle. The, the firm's name was Ove. O-V-E. O-V-E, okay. And his name is Michel Viot. He's a French-Canadian genius. And he's actually more on the artistic side, not so much on the business side of that. But So anyway, then we then started arguing about structures. And we came up with the idea of the overarching company and then renamed the general, renamed the Western PMH captain's name. So uh, I then took the basic structure to the board. So well, how, how do you like this idea? Uh, which had come out of all this conversation. And that the p whole point was open-ended, right? We can now add this, we can add this, we can add this forever with one board, one CEO. That was the structure. And the board, I mean, of course, these board people, they did this sort of stuff three times a day before lunch when they were in and out of companies a lot of times. They liked that. So then we had the next, okay, now, right, we've got the go-ahead for the structure. Now what are we going to call it? And this was a real dust up. This was quite funny. Um, a dust-up. Oh, we sure. Hell, this was – which is great. I mean, if you rebrand and nobody notices, it's a dull thud, right? When we rebranded, we got into terrible trouble. It was great. Um, so the university, uh, I like that because it's, it's a generic name, all right? It's not the university. We weren't saying we were the university. We were sort of kind of implying that, but we didn't say that. And we just happened to be on University Avenue and so on. Then big scrap about health. No, this is a hospital. Said, no, it's not. This is a new game. This is about the Ontario Health System, all right? We're a part of it. We're not a standalone. Let's wake up. You know, the world's changing. So that was a big, you know, health science. Health, center. a broader term of than course, hospital. And we are no longer an island of, aren't we wonderful? We are the best. We are actually, strange as it may seem, part of a big program. And then the real scrap was network. And Fraser Fellow, who I loved, it was a superb guy. He was adamant we were not going to call network. I said, Fraser, you don't understand. Just look at the banks, right? They've changed from providers to purchases. And how do they do it? It was IT, right? That's the structure. You can use a credit card. You can pay online, da, da, da. I can go to South Africa, put my credit card in, and it gets paid. I can't get the, I can't get the health records from Sinai across the road. I mean, this is just ridiculous. So this is the way it's going to be. And that's why we have to call ourselves a network. And well, eventually, by then, of course, I was fairly established as a CEO as opposed to actually 
occasionally listen to what I had to say. So I said, oh, this is one that we're going to call it. So eventually I, we, I got it through. So you so, stuck to your guns oh, on no, this I, one. I was absolutely determined on that. Yeah. And so then it was University Health Network. So then the colors and then the logo, if you look, it's an open circle, not closed. I mean, I studied all this stuff in some detail. And if you look carefully, the leaves have faces on them and so on. And that's patient care research teaching or the West and the general peer. Maybe you, there are different interpretations, which, of course, now change over time, right? Um, so that was it. And then I said, okay, here we go. And uh, I got the most vertebrate. The, the CEO of Silent was a lovely guy. So he came over sort of holding an envelope between his finger and index and his thumb. This is from the board chair. So I opened it up. It was vituperous. How dare I call this? He's going to sue me. They're complaining to the government. They're going to sue the government. So I folded it up. I said, Ted, Ted, just take it back to your chair and tell me I don't accept correspondence like that. He didn't write me a decent letter. I replied to it. So away he went. And I never heard from him again. But it really was quite exciting. What what was the... the concern or the resistance to well, the they renaming. They, it was what what we had called us. We were implying that we were the university hospital, which of course we were. But I mean that that that's what they didn't like. Uh, that was the main part they didn't like. That was the university part of the of that name, which of course is exactly why it stuck it in. Um, so it was very successful, and I mean, Ove and Michel Vio won Canadian prizes for as a marketing exercise of the year sort of thing. And of course the answer is it's still there. That that's the test. It's modified a bit. Modified Almost a little bit. Almost twenty years now, eh? The, yeah, this modified came, a bit. Was this ninety nine that this uh, was renamed? Somewhere in there. Um, so it, it's, it modified a bit. I mean they changed eventually instead of international business machines it became IBM and now it became UHN. Because that's what everyone was calling it. But the you know unexpectedly there was overjoy that we had renamed the General and the Western, whose names had disappeared. Because and it was called the Toronto Hospital. Hospital I was yeah. there, right? Yeah. Of course, I had no idea. This was a Alan Hudson. How th- we, people came to thank me. Thank you for restoring. I, Christ, I didn't realize how important that was. But it was a very big... It's an uh, attachment, yeah, an right, emotional exactly. attachment to the uh, yeah. ho- those hospitals. Yeah, I, I, it's a terrific story. I didn't tell you. It was the, the auxiliaries. I'm mean, interested in the auxiliaries. So we had the auxiliary of the general and the auxiliary of the Western, right? And this was hats and white gloves, right? This was Victorian era. And they were moderately effective. What was the role of auxiliaries? Good question. <laughs> we canceled the auxiliaries. Well, I was going to say, I, I don't know of any auxiliaries today. It. That's why I canceled it. And we put in volunteers. And within three months, we now had young people. We had high school students. We had university students. We had people of color. Could you imagine that? Uh, you know, representing the fabric of the place. It was a huge success. I mean, a massive success. Uh, this new structure, and to this day, I will meet people like oh, the terrible Dr. Hudson who canceled the auxiliaries. But out of those ashes is our volunteers oh, yeah, program, yeah. which oh, is oh, phenomenal. Mammoth success. Yes. Yeah, mammoth, and that was due to. People who got it started. And I know a lot, a lot of kids who are inspired by healthcare. No, no, that's no, no, their no, no. start. That's a whole story on its own. Yeah, yeah. many dimensions. Yes, uh, and so and again, that's the ter- the terrible, tough Dr. Hudson who canceled. Yeah, again, another thing that you decided to phase out uh, quite quickly, eventually. <laughs> the effect of this, we'll call it branding, to yeah. become University Health Network UHN, 
um, and you're, you're back to the, each of these hospitals having their name yeah. recognition back. Princess yeah. Margaret, Toronto Western, Toronto General. What was the effect on staff of this reincarnation, well, if you I, want to call course, it that? The, the staff, to begin with, you know, you've got to, you can't just declare victory because you've put it. It takes a while to concretize, as you know, and it's a crucial step of leadership is not to declare victory too soon because fades away, right? So the effect on staff, they were very pleased to get the names back. I mean, they actually worked at my staff, I'm talking about people who count, right? The nurses, the people there every day. Uh, they actually worked in one of these places. So they had to get used to the idea they were actually working in the UHM, even though I went every day to work at the Western. So right. it took a while. And then don't forget... Every time you hire somebody, you hire them to the new reality. They didn't know about all that old stuff. So that they become much more comfortable in the new entity. And you talk to the average person, they have no idea that all this, that what were we talking about even existed. They come to the UHM, right? Uh, so the staff, I think, were – I mean, the staff were pleased to have some coherence and some <coughs> leadership and some direction instead of this <coughs> very disturbing – I mean, we left out – the horrible, horrible part of the layoffs, which was also enormously disturbing to the place. Um, but we should touch on that because I think that's that's also an important thing. You had to manage your way through. Yes. This was in 94, I this believe? This was sort of Ray Days and all that. Oh, so earlier. And it was quite early. Uh, and we were, you know, the, the, you're talking about the layoff part of it now. Mm-hmm. Um, the arithmetic was easy. It took all of five minutes, all right? I mean, about 75, 80% of your costs are salaries. So you just work out how many fewer salaries do we need to balance the box. I mean, that's not hard. Then I said, show me a nursing ratio for the hospital, which I should have known. I said, I had no idea. How many one-on-ones do you need? How many one-on-two? How many one-on-three? And how many general ward? Well, we were excessively overstaffed. And that had all crept up over the years. And I should have known. I didn't know. I just assumed we had a nursing staff and the nursing staff were doing the job, right? We did the counting. We had way too many nurses. I mean, on that basis, all right? So, um, so as I say, the arithmetic takes all of five minutes, right? And then you have this horrible situation of people who are loyally doing their job, you know, putting groceries on the table, looking after their aged parents and so on. And for no reason, they suddenly... Like, so normally what you do is you freeze hiring and then you let it go by attrition and you get to your goal. We couldn't do that. We just had to, the money was such a big problem. So I literally, we had, I can't remember now, it was 400 let go. It was just absolutely awful. And, um, and I imagine because it's nurses who are really sort of incredibly crucial in terms of the lifeblood of this place. No, they are the place. They feel they are the ones always that get the short end of the stick. That was exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. It was just absolutely There was no avoiding that? There was no no way around that? The the avoidance was no more hires. The hiring freeze, The other piece was attrition wait for people to retire. The timing of the renaming in terms of University Health Network seems fitting because you were just – you're entering a new millennium. Yes. 2000. And at the same time, you're, you seem to be drawing to a close your tenure. What prompted your decision to step down? Well, um, I'm a great believer in the tenure game, which all our professors are five plus five. Five years, you get reviewed, you get another five years. And that means it's the end of ten years, they take you out and shoot you and bring the next guy. <laughs> As opposed to the U.S., where you're a professor for life, and goes to Europe, where you're a professor for life. Because I met so many 
antediluvian professors who were big shots because they were professors for life. And, of course, some of them didn't even use a computer. I mean, you, you can get out of sync real fast. Mm-hmm. Right? So our strength of this place is the 10 plus 10, and then 10 years you're gone. Five plus five, you mean? Five plus five, 10 years you're gone. So I was, you know, I got there when in 89, whatever this was, 99 or something. So that was part of it. But I was starting to get tired. Uh, I mean, it's a very demanding job, and you're out every night and so it's on. seven days a week, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I noticed that. And then the other part I noticed, uh, I made the huge mistake that I thought I actually knew what I was doing. Um, and I learned that long ago in surgery, right? So what you do when you do a case, your know, 300th case or something, tissues just fall apart, blood loss is minimal, beautiful result. You are God's gift to mankind. You know how to do this. That is an absolute guarantee the next day would be a complete fiasco, right? So that sort of syndrome, and I, you, you get to the point you almost mail in your performance. You're like, so, okay, next ball ring, well, I'll just smack together the agenda and tell Fred what to say and so on. You know, you lose your edge because you're getting tired and because you mistakenly think you know what you're doing. So they all sort of came together. And then the other part, I wanted to go sailing. I'd always wanted to go sailing. Sailing. Sail, I was going to sail around the Caribbean and so on. And people talk about it and don't do it, you know. So I had a boat. I was all set to go. So I'd like, to hell with it. I'm, so I said to Fred, you know, Fred, I said, I Fred is. Eaton. Sorry, Fred Eaton, my boss. I said, you know, I'm starting to get tired of this now, and it's not fair to the institution. I mean, you need this place is so complicated. You need a fire plug in there to, to do it. It's not fair to everybody else to have someone walking through the motions. And I said, I think I, I think I'll think about quitting. And he said, Oh, quite right. I'm getting tired. I'll quit as well, which was ridiculous. We both <laughs> quit on the same day, which was stupid. Uh, so that's what I did, and then I got in my boat and sailed down through New York and sailed the Atlantic and sailed up the Delaware and into the Chesapeake. And everyone was laughing. They all thought, I'm going to come back and work tomorrow. You know, this is ridiculous. He's not going to. Anyway, then Harris asked me to go and restart to Kansas County, Ontario. So I came back. Yes, your post-UHN career. Yeah. I'm curious. This is a, I don't know why. It's not necessarily a small thing, but it just seemed to be one thing that I look at as the growth of this place during your time. By the, by the time you left, UHN had gone from Two endowed chairs when you entered yeah. the place in 1991 to 100. Yeah. What's behind that? There were several parts to that, right? I mean, the, the first thing is to understand what a chair is, which most people don't, right? They most think it's the chairman of something. It's not. So it's about the 1400s. It was a, a mark of academic excellence. So the chair that the chief rabbi sat in, the chair that the chief justice sat in, the chief the chief of anatomy sat in, that chair was the mark of academic distinction. And I've been in Padua, where Galileo was trying to explain to the Pope that the earth was not the center of the world and so on. And he was so popular, he, and I've seen it, it was very moving to see it, is this little pulpit that was built for him to address the crowds. And I don't speak Italian, but Chiaro or something like this was part of that story. So where this term came from, that was part of it. It was it, wherever the exact point it came from, it was a mark of academic distinction. That's what a chair was. So uh, we had two. I was the second chair. The first chair was the Eaton chair, and I was – not me. I was – I occupied the McCutcheon chair, right? Um, this is so, when you first came here yeah, in 89. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we – because, again, we were trying to become the world's leading XYZ and so on, we needed more Back chairs. Back to your vision statement. Yeah, right. Um, and then there was another completely uh, – this was a crass uh, fundraiser. 
because the university had determined for two million bucks you could get a chair. So this was perfect. So we said, again, extraordinarily generous, very wealthy people. Would you like to give us a chair? And then their name was on it, and then also their interest was on it. So if they had a kid with this, they'd give the chair in that area. And so it became a very, very good fundraiser. It became what I wanted was to have more ch chairs to improve. And we're back to this issue of non-remunerative non activity. So, I mean, in, in this place, say all the high school teachers here, is a good way of understanding, taught for nothing. They all did another job, and by the way, they taught. That's how we taught. That's how we did research. We earned our own income, right? Very little money coming to teach patents or do research, so we did it on the side. So we needed more support for non-remunerative activity, which is what the chair provides, right? So now you've got, besides the grants we're talking about, you now got two million bucks in your pocket to hire your assistants and so on. So it was the research part. It was the crass money-grabbing part. And the downside was it rather removed the cachet of the chair. When you're going to have 100 chairs, it's not quite as great as having one or five. But it, so it worked in every dimension. But is it a selling point for you, HN? Of course, because you see... We can hold, like someone, okay, so Duke's going to grab this guy. So part of our attention strategy. You're talking about Duke University. Yeah. yeah. Uh, our attention strategy, okay, we'll give you a chair. It's part of, it, it, we could do what we want to do, which is maintain our aim at academic excellence and retain people by giving them a chair, which for those folks, for most of the folks, meant they could actually have a lab and pay for it. Out of the head of slush fund, they could actually do things with, which enable them to get the big grants later on. So it, there were many dimensions to it. Uh, and so it's a you, recruiting bargaining chip. Oh, it was many different directions in which yeah. you could use it. Um, so that, that was why I pushed it so hard. How important were they? Well, it's absolutely critical. I mean, I mean, and, and now we still have the odd island of a very important function that doesn't have a chair. So we still have to fill that. Well, that's not my job anymore. I'm through. Um, but they, they still exist. So, you know, it was an interesting uh, multidimensional game. And what was so good about every dimension worked. We satisfied numerous uh, elements. Your legacy. In many ways, when I look at your tenure, those yeah. nine years as, as the head of UHN, what you established still defines this place today, the research institutes, the measurements of quality and, you know, holding people accountable, uh, the innovative ways of raising money for infrastructure, uh, the place, what we call it today, UHN, uh, honing in on the, the, the research specialties and our, as you pointed out, the prior priorizing of our special specialties as an acute care place. Was this the plan all along when you came in? Well, I had absolutely no idea what the end game was going to look like. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do. We discussed this, what the vision was and what the rules were going to be and mm -hmm. what we were trying to do. I had absolutely no idea. I mean, I told you how PMH came about. That I didn't think we were going to merge the PMH. So, I, I no, no, the answer, I had no idea. I had a very good idea of what I wanted to be in general. The specifics were circumstances, opportunities that came along. So... Um, no, I knew sort of in general where I was going, but uh, a lot of things had happened. I mean, you take advantage of what crops up within the vision. Well, let's grab that because that's going to support our vision. But I didn't know it was going to happen. So, uh, no, I mean, what happened at the end 
was as usual a, mi- or a mix of where we knew where we wanted to go and applied to like in other areas and, and opportunities that came up in other areas. And so, and, and so, no, I didn't have the grand plan of what it looked like at the end. I never even heard of UHN at the beginning. It strikes me, though, that the blueprint for how we operate today at UHN begins with the groundwork you laid. Yeah, the blueprint began in 1812, right? That was the hospital, <laughs> the war, war. I mean, it's been a succession in times with society, in times with different visions. I mean, I had a part. I, we were talking about this. It's a relay race. You know, someone gives you the baton, you run like hell, 110 meters, and you give the baton to someone else. I mean, I had a part of it. I'm very happy. I'm very proud of that. But, uh, you know, it, it is a continuum. I mean, it goes on, and amazingly, the place didn't fall apart when I left, you know. What's it mean to you, though, to see that legacy still enduring today? Um, well, what you're talking about is I actually don't sort of think backwards very much. I mean, I'm thinking of what's tomorrow, what's the next. And, and I, I, well, I tell you, so, yeah, I mean, I am very proud of what's happened, uh, of what everyone else has done, what they've achieved, and so on. And I think I, I can say with pride, I was part of it, right? I mean, the only utterly pathetic and petty view of the legacy that I have is the only time I ever think about it, which is a remarkable deficit in my character. I get extremely annoyed and irritated when other people claim to have done what I did, which is extremely petty, but who gives a shit? I mean, it's, what's important is that the place goes forward, mm-hmm. and at the end, who cares who did it? But I do get I get mad if someone says the PMH was their idea and it was my idea. <laughs> so that's that's a personal. Well, it's important we cleared the record today. Uh, yeah, well, thank you for giving that opportunity. Oh, you should actually you will of course interview other people. May, they may have different records, as you well know. <laughs> there was one other thing actually that uh, struck me when we initially chatted uh, on background was that you you actually also had a, a, an approach to the position of the president and CEO, that you also uh, essentially transformed. Tell us about that. Yeah, these sort of pendulums. When when I was a student, the administrator of the hospital was always some completely failed drunken surgeon. They wouldn't let operate. Oh, my God. We're going to get sued here. They make make you the head of the hospital, right? What else is he going to do? And then that phase was followed by what I call an MBA phase, which is just a catchword. These were actually professionally trained businessmen, right? And, and you can see trying to introduce some element of rational business activity. By the way, a mammoth expenditure for the province, right? I mean, there's a good reason for that. And then when I came along, I saw this as a sort of a dean uh, CEO combo. I could move academia, I could move and run the hospital because I had the budget. I mean, I had the authority, I had the budget. Of course, I was accountable to the board, right? But I I could do it. So I thought this is a terrific opportunity. This is actually better than being the dean, right? Because the dean, you have all the academic things, but you have no money. And then, by, and then a further part of that was Arnie. Arnie and I, we kid each other. We both Arnie. Arnie Aberman. Chief physician, we both only at University lasted, of we, Toronto. We both only lasted two years. He went off to be the dean. Oh. I went off to be the CEO. Right. So we were on the phone a lot because luckily we both wanted to do exactly the same thing, and I had the means to do it. Right. So when I conceived of this as a as a different job, not just the business job, and funny enough, after me, everybody in town has either been a nurse or a doctor. And now. Interesting, that whole cycle has gone through. Kevin Smith comes in. He's not a doctor. He's a PhD doctor. He knows more medicine than most of my physician's friends do. And he's a superb choice. But now we've 
back not having avenue was me. Tom, actually, Tom wasn't a physician, but Bob was a doctor and Pistis was a doctor. Talk about and, Tom Kloss and Bob yeah, Bell. Yeah, yeah. and Pistis was, and at sick kids, I had a nurse and then so on. So there was a move away from the Vic Stoutons and the football players and the sick kids and so on. And now, I mean, the answer is, I mean, what you, is it easier to teach a businessman medicine or to teach a medical man business, right? That's the question. And the answer is, Yes, right. Just choose. The, no, just choose the best person. Right. There is no. There is no answer. Choose the best candidate. And and look, Kevin now is superb. We couldn't have a better person. How are you doing? Well, it takes quite a while to. <clears throat> the first thing, of course, everyone knows the phone stops ringing. So that's quite an interesting experience. And you're suddenly you're no longer the, the head. And then the other part was interesting on the sailing was, you know, I'd call for the engineer to fix the engine. You call the navigation officer, and of course, you're it. That's you're it. you. You're everything, right? So it's quite a different You're back to being a neurosurgeon. It's quite a different experience. So, and then actually, then I did, you know, restructured cancer Ontario, and then I did all the weight down stuff. And so I had jobs of lesser personal, personal, I mean, I was responsible for everything, but it's less on my shoulders. And also, of course, I had a few more clues on how to do it. So I didn't make quite so many clangers on the way. So I had sort of jobs of lesser and lesser and sort of slowly slowed down. But I mean, it took me about six years to eight years to retire. I, 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 if you say now you're retired, yes, I'm retired. You miss it? Um, I, 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 I tell you what I missed. What I miss is going to work today, any day. And, you know, something would happen. I thought, oh, that's fine. Get six people in the room. They're all geniuses, you know, either financial geniuses or leukemia geniuses, whatever it is. And we all said, what the hell do we do now? And they all knew if they didn't come, I'd do something stupid. So they all, they all came. <laughs> and so that was a huge experience like every day to work with a brilliant people. And you walk around the halls now. What kind of feeling do you get of this well, place? That, that's very interesting. As you walk around the halls, the people who greet me, oh, hi, daughter, are all the floor cleaners and the infrastructure staff because they've been there all along. And they go, hi, how are you? The docks, by and large, moved on. They're either dead or retired or something. Uh, so, it, I mean, I walk into a meeting or a social gathering. Each time I go in, now, now I know less than 20% of the people there. And I used to know everybody. So that's an unusual feeling. I go to support Kevin. I go to support people like that. You're listening to the UHN Oral History Project, conversations with former leaders of UHN, the University Health Network, Canada's largest teaching and research hospital. I'm Christian Cote from UHN Public Affairs. And today we're joined by Dr. Alan Hudson, UHN president and CEO from 1991 to 2000. Now, over the course of your career, what was your sense of what you learned about how to be a successful leader? Well, the learning part is, is the key part. Right? I mean, I read biography of every prime minister of England, every president of the U.S., every general in the Second World War. I mean, that's learning leadership styles, what they're doing. And by watching, you watch Trudeau Senior, you watch Kretchen, totally different styles, both very effective. So and you watch, I mean, nowadays it's perfect. You have an exemplar of perfect, do exactly the opposite and you'd be a good leader. So that's great to have that, that exactly how not to lead. So, I mean, it is learning the whole time and watching you know, watching Harper, a very different style to watching Trudeau and so on. So, I mean, you, you're watching all the time at different methods, different introverts, extroverts, stuff. So, it is, I mean, the emphasis is learning and then um, 
you, the elements of communication and all the other subsets of being a leader, again, I had to learn. I mean, I thought I was a terrific communicator. Was I was talking to patients every day, which was, you know, was a horrible communicator. But you try and learn as you go along. So all those elements, there are specific elements of it. Um, the absolute key is always to have a group of five, six, seven people around you and different groups, depending on what you're doing. Don't try and do it by yourself, whatever you do. Uh, and the absolute, absolute requirement is that you are a servant of the people you're leading. And we see people who do these jobs for self-aggrandizement and so on. Of course, they're hopeless. Um, but we, as you know, we have quite a few of those around. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a huge subject, but I think the issue is you keep learning how to do it. Um, and and in, I teach quite a lot on leadership, and in some parts I find impossible to teach. I mean, the, um, what I find hard to teach is the weakness of mine, I'm sure. You know, the continuum of dictatorship and consensual, you know, that whole range, and there's a time when you want a lot of people to tell you what to do, and then you settle the policy, and then after that you dictatorial. You get that right. I mean, poor leaders inevitably ask for consensus when they should be acting, or worse, they act when they should get a consensus, and they stumble from one self-imposed disaster to another. I find it very, very hard to teach people how to learn that, and I think the way to learn that is become an apprentice. You, know, you work next to someone who knows what they're doing, and you sort of absorb and learn those rhythms as to when to stop and when to go, and Crossgrove was superb at that. He knew when he- Peter Crossgrove. Yeah, he, could, yeah. he knew when to speak on behalf of the board, and he knew when he couldn't do that, he had to have a board meeting to discuss it. He, he had a terrific sense of that, and I learned a lot of that from him. So, I mean, there's a huge, there are so many facets to leadership, but it's a learning experience, I mean, as you get better. And, you know, leaders you admire and leaders you detest. <laughs> so it's all part of it. What, what would be your advice to young people wanting to enter the profession of healthcare? Well, one through 10 is the same answer. Only do it if you love it. I mean, do it, don't do it because your mother wants you to be a doctor or don't do it because your father wants you to be a doctor. Don't do it if you think you're going to make money. You're going to make money, become a hedge fund. You know, that's ridiculous. Um, do it because you want to serve people and do it. That's your model of your life. Uh, and if you do it, it's the most wonderful thing you can do. And it's a fantastic base degree. It's like engineering, right? You know, you become a ship's doctor, you become a school's doctor, you become a public health doctor, you scrape the bottom of the barrel, you can become a neurosurgeon. I mean, there's, with the medical training, you can go in endless, you can become a writer, right? Endless directions. Uh, so it's a great, I encourage people, I don't ever force people, you know, my, only one of my four kids did the medicine and only one of her kids went into medicine. So we encourage to do, but lots of other things to do in life. So the absolute key, it's not compulsory, right? You, this is your choice to enter a service orientation of your life. What would be your counsel to people about how to approach failure? Yeah, that's a hugely important part of it, hugely important part of it. Especially in research, but I imagine I also know, in practice. Yeah. So, I mean, again, on the circumstances, I mean, failure for me as a neurosurgeon was awful. Uh, people died or were harmed because of my operation. So you talk to any experienced surgeon, we've all had these experiences. And of course, in our day, you, know, you didn't discuss it, you just suppressed it and you got up, operated the next day. There's now much more 
discussion of the mental health of surgeons and caregivers. So not in my day. So uh, failure was, uh, you know, some my failures still haunt me. Today? Yeah. You remember them? Oh, yeah. Vividly? Well, I had a young man, uh, very standard mechanical operation in the back of his head. He woke up blind. I, you know, I was nowhere near the visual area, and that's reported, it's known, and he's blind the rest of his life. How do you move on as a surgeon? Well, it's very difficult. Uh, but you have to because you've got to operate the next day. And uh, obviously, as you get better, you do less and less of that. Um, so, in, and of course, the trick, they don't, as always, is what went wrong? How do you recover and so on? And I mean, later, as you get into a broader context, it's you follow the airline game, which is, you know, how did the system allow that error to occur? And now that side of it has moved terribly the wrong way. Because now we don't blame anybody. Whatever you do, don't blame them. There's always pilot error, mm. always pilot error. I mean, what happens is you have systems coinciding, so there's bang, 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 three systems went wrong, and therefore this is what happened. But the fact remains, a smart person would have spotted that and stopped it. So there's always pilot error. And, the, and I pushed very hard on the airline idea of systems to prevent error. Uh, but there's way too much excuse because the word accountability, you are accountable for when went wrong. Why the hell didn't you fix the systems? I mean, don't get away from that side of it. And, you know, the old story, Churchill, never, never, never give up, just keep slugging. And uh, the other part when you have big failures is to get friends to help you. And you, actually, it's very interesting. You discover who your friends are very fast, of course. Some people suddenly stop calling you. Um, and uh, Kevin Smith, on an occasion... For me, I had a very bad experience. He phoned me every night for three weeks. I'm sorry. This obviously dredged something up for you that I did not know existed. It does speak to, though, I would imagine that this is something that we have perhaps covered over a lot in healthcare or have That's not true. really addressed because right. we think our doctors are automatons yes, or oh, exactly. uh, not far, human. far more att attention paid to it now. Yes, and now you've got to be very careful going too far the other way. I mean, the, the quickest way to get stress in an organization is to talk about stress. Yes. So you have to talk about stress, but don't over-talk about stress and, you know, suck it up and get on with the job, So, which is what we used to do. So you, you want to try and find the, the correct level. Burnout now rightfully is emerging in, in terms of healthcare professional mental health is emerging as something that we need to talk about. And something we never talked about. Yes. Right? And so yes. you're absolutely correct. And it was never called burnout, of course, when people just went you off. You just told to suck it up. No, they just went off and became alcoholics or they, right. they did all the usual things. Yeah. Um, and that was what that was all about, of course. Yes. Um, so now I'm I'm all in favor. And it's, of course, not just I'm a surgeon. It's all in this applies to everybody. Right? Sure. Nurses, you know, being a nurse in the ICU and half your patients dying all the time, that's not a very easy experience. I mean, and interesting enough, in the 60s, I solved that at St. Michael's. We had the neurosurgical ICU in the middle of the ward, fenced off, and the ordinary wards around the edge. So when the nurses got worn out or burnt out, we put them on the ward. And then after four months, I got bored of being in the ward, put them back in the ICU. Mm -hmm. So we managed it. I mean, we didn't call it burnout, but we managed that experience quite well. And I keep touting that. That's how you do it. And not too many people have listened to me since then, but that, it was very successful. What's your take on the challenge of running a hospital today? 
Well, if you're lucky, it's a terrifically exciting, interesting, uh, fulfilling job. Uh, so, I mean, I would encourage you, if, if that's what you want to do, it's not compulsory. <laughs> uh, it's uh, demanding. It's a terrific lot of fun. I mean, it's an opportunity. I mean, you sort of wander through life and you get a privilege of serving in such a meaningful way. I mean, where, where else do you get that complete fluke? You get it, take it, you know. So, I, uh, I mean, the other part is nowadays you have to actually prepare for it. I mean, it's slightly different to my day. I mean, and I had quite a bit to do with that in Toronto. I mean, Sandy Rotman came one day and said, I'm going to give you a million bucks. I said, well, thank you. I said, I'll give you a million bucks. So I found a million bucks. And I said, so now we've got a chair, just to your point. I said, what do you want the chair to be? And she didn't know. I said, how about the business of medicine, which she agreed to. And then weeks or so later, I had, actually the same week, I had dinner with Joe. We were friendly with him, and he was a very good patron of mine. And I said, we better tell you how we're spending your money. And so Sandy said, we're going to spend $2 million. He said, well, that's, I have a $3 million chair I haven't assigned at the business school. So in one week, I had a $5 million chair to which I had done absolutely nothing. And then uh, they wanted me to take the business. I said, you're crazy. This is exactly what you don't want. You want a professional here. So I chaired the search committee and then landed Brian Golden. And that's just expand. We went the next thing. Joe went to the dean and said, "By the way, you now have a health sector in the business school," which I thought was a bit much. But anyway, and that's just grown unbelievable. And now we have a full international health MBA of the highest level. That's and that's nothing to do with me. That's Brian Golden and the, you know the dean of the business school and so on. But I, I was involved in, in getting that going. Uh, so now you have to prepare yourself. I mean, you can't play games anymore. And and the, the nice thing about these programs, I mean, I sent Michael Baker to INSEAD, I sent, and Michael Gurria was at Kellogg, and Bob Bell went to Harvard Business School where I went. It, it causes self-selection. People come back and I say, yeah, that was fantastic. When can I go to the next course? You know, I'd be like, well, that was pretty boring. You know? And then they stop. They stop doing it. So it helps select out the future leaders. And you, when there are a lot of technical skills, you really have to, well, not you have to know, you have the opportunity, you know, you'd be stupid not to. Mm. And you, you know, look at Jack Wells, look at all these other examples of structures and so on. It's all part of the learning process. So you need to prepare yourself for the job. You just don't walk in there and something like Kevin, for example, is, you know, is a PhD in health uh, research evaluator. I mean, he's a very smart apple. He's been a CEO of a hospital. He's been a CEO of a huge system. Mm -hmm. He worked with me on one of the biggest problems, which we call ALC, alternative care, people blocking emerge admissions because they're in hospital, should be somewhere else. I mean, he's immensely experienced, and he's very productive, and he has terrific emotional quotient skills. I mean, he's got the package. That's why you're part of him. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he didn't just walk in there. He's, that's, you know, he's worked at this all his life. Last words to you on yes. your, your time at UHN. What stands uh, out for you? Well, well, we've already spoken about it. I mean, what a fluke of luck to have a, to have a privilege to do that. Uh, how exciting it was. And mainly the people that I was working with because... That's what stops. You suddenly on meeting with vibrant, uh, brilliant, innovative people every day, who are pushing you along to get, actually get you get yourself into gear and do something. So I mean that was a, just a huge blast as far as I was concerned. You know I look back at my career, neurosurgeon, neurosurgeon, da 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 da, cancer care Ontario. Went on. That that ten years was the best of my life. As leader of yeah. UHN. Yeah. Wow. 
Dr. Alan Hudson, I want to thank you for your service to UHN. And we appreciate your time today to share your experiences while leading us. This is Christian Cote for the UHN Oral History Project. Thank you for listening.